Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? We watched the movie Some of All Fears today, and it got me thinking. What happens when you try to sum up all of your fears on a podcast, but your greatest fear, even more than global thermonuclear war, is doing math in public? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. I am joined in the podcast studio slash my basement with my co-host Gabe. Gabe, welcome back. Hey, hello, all nuclear people out there. Good to be back, Tim. Great. Our usual, well, old podcast host, Joel, uh, was not able to make it here today because he and his wife welcomed a new child into the world and they decided for some weird reason they didn't want to expose it to a movie about nuclear war and Nazis mm. that early in life. I can't, I can't imagine why. Fair enough, uh, but congratulations to him and his wife. Fortunately, we are joined over Skype today by John Duke of Vortex Aereo Media. John, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So what is Vortex Aereo Media? Because I know we, we've met on Twitter, we, ch- we chatted quite a bit, uh, but what is your service and what expertise do you bring to bear today on the podcast? So I, uh, up until 2016, I flew helicopters for the Royal Navy, and um, uh, then I uh, I started a small company, Vortex Aereo Media, with a friend of mine, uh, Lloyd Horgan, who's a very good photographer, uh, and we provide uh, media facilities for um, the defense and aerospace industry. So we do a bit of copywriting, photography, video, that sort of thing um, for uh, either uh, aerospace companies or um, the related uh, media magazines, that sort of thing. Very, very cool. Uh, I know you had some time recently to sit inside the cockpit of one of the helicopters from a movie we covered on the podcast, Mission really? Impossible Fallout. Uh, so it's funny, you kind of mixed, your, your, your life is uh, very much mixed between uh, nuke movies, uh, real movies, and the the other parts of aerospace really cool and john am i correct are you the one who gave us the atom splitter beer for the atomic alcohol episode yeah that's right yeah i sent uh, i sent a few of those over thank you that was my favorite beer from the episode so thank you very much for that yeah you're welcome it's a really nice a really nice drink yeah good a good english bitter all right so what are we here here to talk about uh we're here to talk about the 2002 movie some of all fears which is the second tom clancy book about jack ryan that we covered on the podcast the other one being the hunt for red october it is the second ben affleck vehicle we've covered because we also did batman versus superman but it is the first to feature an austrian neo-nazi trying to spark a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. Although, to be fair, the last time we covered a very similar plot, the villain was Swedish. So, in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So, it's different enough, right? Yeah, no, I think I think different country, uh, same continent, different country. I think we're good. Yeah, it, this kind of story comes up quite a lot. Trying to start a war between the U.S. and Russia, different ways of going about yeah, doing like it. Yeah, it's like, how many villains can you have doing, I mean, okay, like, the, the former disgruntled Soviet general neo-nazi uh middle eastern terrorist group there's just so many you can do they need to have a war where it's like the canadians tried to start something (laughs) something completely Uh, unexpected yeah yeah so this movie the sum of all fears was directed by phil alden robinson uh who directed also field of dreams wow one of Joel's favorite movies as well, Sneakers. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's a fun fun one with uh, Sidney Poitier and a bunch of others. Uh, he also wrote the Sylvester Stallone, Dolly Parton movie, Rhinestone. So what a range on wow. that guy, right? That is, uh, yeah, I would not 
take those movies to be done by the same person is very interesting, actually. Yeah, but there's quite a cast here too. So what? Uh, what? What are your favorite cast members here, John, in terms of the people in this film? Kind of like the president, actually. I think um, James Cromwell. Yeah, I, I haven't seen him in a bunch of stuff. It seems like he's maybe a little bit typecast because every time I think I've seen the maybe fifty percent of the time I've seen the president in a film, it's it's <laughs> James Cromwell. He's either yeah. playing the president or or some senior military guy. Um, but he he. I thought he did a really competent job of giving the impression of a of a president who's completely under control, you know, when things are going well, and then it, the you know the the things start to unravel uh, when um, when the pressure's on. Other than that, uh, Morgan Freeman thought uh, did a did a really a really good job of not actually being Morgan Freeman too much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in this one director of the cia he was good as kind of like a badass um y- you know like seasoned uh gritty veteran of the uh yeah. the intelligence infrastructure he mentions at one point on the i because i watched the special features for the dvd that the previous people who played cabot or the cia director james earl jones and other things uh they never got to do anything they're always like in a room, but they weren't able to go out in the field and gotcha. all that. So he was like excited yeah. that his role was a little meatier. But I think it's kind of funny because James Cromwell and Morgan Freeman were in a White House together in a previous movie, but the roles were reversed. In Deep Impact, oh. Morgan Freeman was the president and James Cromwell, I forget exactly what his role was, but he was like a high level advisor to deal with asteroids and things. So you also got Ben Affleck in the starring role for Jack mm-hmm. Ryan. Uh, that was right after Pearl Harbor. I think he got offered the part while he was filming Pearl Harbor with... Alec Baldwin, who's also a previous Jack Ryan, so he asked him for permission if it was okay to take on the mantle and all that stuff. Was this was this movie around the time of like peak Ben Affleck? Like, where was this in relation to Julie? And uh, yeah, <laughs> is that 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 is, that's, that's kind of the yeah? I think the end was Julie. Okay, so that's the the precipice where it starts to fall. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't I haven't committed that date to memory. Okay, but uh, sure, that sounds about right. That's before he got into directing. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And then uh, oh, we of also. Course, yeah. And then we also have, uh, I would never pronounce this guy's name correctly, Syrian Hines, uh, who plays the president of Russia. Uh, You may recognize him from The King Beyond the Wall in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I thought he was really good in this as well. Yeah, great. And I understand that he learned some of his Russian dialogue um, in in pretty short time. Yeah, um, like phonetically, pretty much. Yeah. There's quite a lot of Russian dialogue in this, too, so Mm -hmm. you can't hide it. You can't hide behind, you know, a couple of lines. We like the characters here and everything, but... What did the audience and critics think of this? Uh, I did the research because it's been a while. This is one of the first Nuke movies I've ever seen in the theater. I think it might actually be the first one. So it's very fond memories for me seeing it. But because I think I liked the movie when it came out. But looking back on it, decidedly mixed. According to Box Office Mojo, it made a lot of money. It made over $190 million worldwide on like a $70 million budget. So not too bad, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't spawn a whole bunch of more Jack Ryan movies with Ben Affleck. Uh, it was one of the last Jack Ryan movies for a long time. Was this, I mean, do we think this was intended to be like the start of a, mm-hmm. um, a series? Okay, okay. I, I didn't think so. know that. Yeah. Uh, Bridget Moynihan, who plays uh, Jack Ryan's lady friend, like a, a, a nurse or a doctor. Yeah. I couldn't tell what, what, what her oh, job she's was. she's like doctor. in residence or something. Right, residence, right. She says in the junket that she hopes that people will like Ben Affleck so that they can do a bunch more. Well, too bad nobody likes Ben Affleck, so. Bummer. Kind of, kind of a funny place to start, though, isn't it, with the sum of all fears. If you're going to have a young Jack or a younger Jack Ryan, because mm-hmm. um, in the in the book series afterwards, it's kind of very quickly becomes Jack Ryan, you know, in senior government staff and then as the president. Mm-hmm. And I can't really see Ben Affleck carrying that off as a, what was he, mid-30s? Mid-late-30s? Yeah. I guess they would just do a lot more of the early Jack Ryan stuff. Mm. I think in the book, 
I've not read the book, Some of All Fears, but in the book, he's the deputy director of the CIA yeah. when this is happening. Well, I, I have a couple points on that we'll get to in the plot part of it, but uh, I do like the fact that it's an early Jack Ryan story instead of it just being like after Claire and Prince in Danger or something. Rotten Tomatoes, that kind of brings together all the critics. Only 59% of people that reviewed this movie thought it was good. It's not. That's not great. It's not certified fresh. It's, it's rotten. Yeah. The yeah. consensus summary on the website is a slick and well-made thriller that takes on new weight due to the current political climate. I'm not sure if that meant 2002 or you know, 2019. I gotta say, the whole time I'm watching this movie and you see um, President Fowler and the nuclear codes, and I'm just thinking, holy, you know what? Like, that would be Donald Trump. <laughs> like, the whole time, that's what I'm thinking. Remember that when we talk about the two-man rule, when they try to use the nuclear football to launch? Because the movie gets it right, the book gets it wrong. Okay. And we'll just remember that little bit of slice of preview when we talk about it later. Okay. They did try to make this as accurate as possible. They, they, The producers of the film sought out military and government officials to advise them on the film. One of the people that, w- that was helping there was Air Force Liaison Chief Charles E. Davis. And according to him, it was probably one of the most technically correct films in a long time. He's, he's going to say that, though, isn't he? Right, I mean, that's his it's job. The guy whose job is, is <laughs> yeah. to make it realistic, you know. Uh, at least one of the producers, Mace Newfield, said, having such support from government and military added verbosilitude that could not otherwise have been achieved on screen. They at least thought it was pretty accurate. But what do we think, you know? Let's let's get into that part of it here. I, yeah, that's why we're here, right? Right. We have a little bit of a mix of perspectives. Like me, I live and breathe nuclear policy for a living and think about that stuff at my spare time. I'm on Nuke Map on the weekends. Gabe, you're not into it except for talking to me. Yeah. yeah you have your own regular life. <laughs> yeah. And then John is somewhere in the middle, you know, former military, really enthusiastic about watching these kind of films and thinking and talking about them. So really curious to see our different perspectives. Well, on and it's good because John, because in the in the movie Jack Ryan, he's also former military, has moved on to well, not really civilian life, quasi civilian life. So John is a good, uh, yeah. For, I think Jack Ryan's a former Navy guy, right? Uh, Marines, I think. Marines, yeah, Marines, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, he seemed better able to. Um to get around certainly in the latter part of the film than perhaps I would have managed having been uh, in a helicopter accident but we can, we can talk about that again <laughs> yeah I think in The Hunt for Red October they talk about that he had a he was laid up uh, he got in a, 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 a f- an injury coming out of a helicopter and he finished all of his tests and things while he was like in traction. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. So, okay. So Tim, you've mentioned a few times that there's this book out there. And I guess before we start all this, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, if you haven't watched the movie, stop the podcast, go do that Mm -hmm. and then come back and listen to this. But uh, I mean, does the movie kind of follow the book largely or have there been some changes made? So, the biggest difference in the book versus the movie, uh, Jack Ryan is much more senior in his career in the book. He's uh, already married. He is, a, I think, the deputy director of the CIA. He negotiates a peace deal that works over Jerusalem, basically trying to turn it into the Vatican-style okay. f- arrangement, and it works. He brings people together. Everything is everything looks like it's going to be fine, and th- this arrangement does not really suit well for some people. Uh, there is a person who is a uh, high-ranking U.S. security ad- advisor. I forget her actual role, uh, but she's romantically linked to the now-widowed president, and she hates Jack Ryan. She hates the fact that he is so an upstart, so popular. That so she tries to stop the deal. Okay, convinces President Fowler that Jack Ryan is no good, 
uh, and also there are Arab nationalists, uh, kind of a Palestinian front type group who doesn't want the deal to take place. So they are the ones trying to start a, a nuclear war to disrupt am the I, peace process. Am I recalling correctly? Didn't they make some changes because of 9-11? Because I think this movie came out shortly after 9-11. I seem to recall because I was, I was actually a big fan of this movie at the time and I think they wanted to change the, um, the the antagonist group from you know Middle Eastern terrorists to some something else that would be more not maybe strike at people so much. So the movie was released in 2002, but it was written in early 2000, 2001. Okay. So it was before all of this, the director claimed it had already been written like years before and it was meant to have Harrison Ford in it. Okay. But then Harrison Ford dropped out, the director dropped out. Uh, who had done the, some of the previous Jack Ryan movies. So they had to redo everything, start from scratch. So it was changed, but the thought was, ironically, that they didn't think that Arab nationalists could pull off an attack like that. Oh, really? Okay. You can't go wrong with it with using Nazis as a villain, though, can you? Yeah. I mean, how many, you're not going to turn off that much of your audience. Right. Everyone hates Nazis. Well, this is kind of, we'll get into a little bit later, but they changed it to the this like rising fascist movements mm-hmm. right-wing p- political parties in Europe and they decided that would be the the major huh. thrust a, of a everything. little uh, a little pressure a little um sad. Yeah, somebody true. had a crystal ball out it's interesting yep but a lot of the other parts of the movie track there's a a nuclear threat at a Super Bowl the president is involved there's other things but there's other places where it's different I think we'll We'll get into that a little bit later, but that's the main thrust of it. And then the other scenes have been added from other Jack Ryan books as well. But let's get started into this movie. As Gabe mentioned, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen the film, go out and see it. We're going to spoil it because that's how we do it. From the electrifying bestseller by Tom Clancy. The crate was put on a cargo freighter headed for the East Coast. What? And the producer of Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games. It's Ryan! The bomb is in play! Netflix. Where's the president now? They're taking him airborne. They think it might be the Russians. It wasn't the Russians. Morgan Freeman. It adds up. You just don't like what it adds up to. If you strike against the Russians, you sacrifice your moral authority. We have reason to believe the bomb was the work of terrorists, not the Russians. And if you shut me out, your family and 25 million other families will be dead. The sum of all fears. Directed by Phil Alden Robinson. Let's start with the opening text on the screen. Gabe, why don't you you read us the background here? All right. 29 years ago, in 1973, a single A-4 Israeli jet loaded with a nuclear bomb takes off during the Yom Kippur War with Egypt and Syria when it looked like Israel would be defeated. It looks like it's either implying that Israel is about to use a nuclear weapon, or at least they're trying to put it into the field to make the other side think that they should back down. It's not entirely clear, but before we even figure that out, the pilot gets distracted by uh, a picture of the family and they get shot down yeah, by a surfaced air any missile. any pilot would not be looking outside. He'd be looking down at pictures mm-hmm. while flying. So, it's but... always a picture of the wife and kids, isn't it? it does so, <laughs> yeah. It's such a well-used trope. <laughs> yeah, John, whenever you fly, yeah. do you always take that, like, put photographs, put a little collage on the on the panel for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, most of my time uh, flying helicopters was, was uh, you know, exercising my artistic bent, <laughs> uh, putting together portfolios, on the uh, usually over the really important instruments. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> well, you, I think, Gabe, you, you have, every time I fly with you, you have a picture of your cat, so I don't know. Yeah, right, he's always got to be up there, yeah. Or else the plane doesn't fly if he's not, if the picture's not there. It's very important equipment. Well, it's kind of funny. I was about to say your cat named Captain, 
is your co-pilot, but then it would be really confusing that the captain is your co-pilot. Yeah, that's a, that's why we don't talk. We just put the picture up. It's, yeah, yeah. It, that's that's a that's definitely an airplane confusion. Like Roger, exactly. Roger, over, over. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, all right. So the pilot's distracted. He's shot down. And where's the bomb go? Well, it kind of gets buried in the desert amongst the wreckage and good scorpion acting. The scorpion comes right up to the screen. I don't know how they train scorpions to do that, but that's really impressive. Yeah, that was the best, the best paid, they, they found the best paid, uh, most experienced scorpion in Hollywood for that yep. one. Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't get the role of, of scorpion king later on with the rock, but <laughs> yeah. that's, it's hard, hard to get that. Uh, so we've covered broken arrow incidents. Broken arrows are when the military civilians, whoever happens to be in control over the nuclear weapon at the time, uh, loses it. We covered that on the movie Broken Arrow, number four of our uh, our podcast. So get into uh, that more in the, on that particular episode. But so, so uh, this war, though, I mean, there's been so many conflicts in that area. I mean, I didn't know anything about this. Do you, do you know anything about this this conflict? Is this an actual thing that happened? It, it definitely was. Uh, there was a series of wars uh, in 1973. There was a six-day war conflict a couple of years before that uh, when Israel had was its military was starting to get stronger. And, and uh, at that particular moment, Egypt and Syria and other and other countries in the region didn't, you know, they don't get along that well, Gabe. Uh, they certainly have had a number of conflicts. But the, this particular one on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast, uh, uh, Nathan, who's a listener, asked whether or not Israel actually had nukes in this war, in the theater of this conflict or if it was just a made-up plot McGovern. So similar question here. It is a really fascinating moment in history. During this conflict, Israel was caught off guard when it was a surprise attack from Egypt and Syria. It was a big intelligence failure. They really didn't know that this was happening. And even when they said, all right, something's going to happen today by evening time, they got it messed up. It happened like around the afternoon. So the conflict happened very quickly. Israel was caught off guard. And eventually on October 9th of 1973, Israel had already lost 50 aircraft, 500 tanks. It seemed like they were days away from defeat to the point where the defense minister brought up the idea of using nuclear weapons in a meeting with the prime minister, uh, saying that the country was, quote, on the point of last resort and the end of the third temple, which is coincidentally also the code name Israel has for its nuclear weapons temple. Instead of doing that, the, the Prime Minister uh, Golda Meir requested that the United States send over really, really fast some military aid, some new tanks, stuff to, re- to replete their losses. And she also put her Jericho missiles on high alert, and they were nuclear capable. Reports were that she authorized the assembly of 13 tactical nuclear weapons of around 20 kilotons each and put them on the Jericho missiles, and not on A-4s, but on the F-4 Phantom II aircraft. That's what I was going to say, because that A-4 Skyhawk, it's a very small, it's a light attack airplane. That's not, yeah. It is nuclear capable. Oh, it is, okay. And it can carry this weapon. Okay. But it was not the one that they were using in the field, according to all the reports that I saw. Very interesting. And they did this in a way that would be very recognizable by the Americans. They, were, they, were, they weren't hiding this. Because the idea was Kissinger would see this and go, oh, crud, there's about to be a nuclear conflict. Let's send over military aid before things get out of hand. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, if you think your country is really on the brink of, of basically being, and it sounds like this was a an existential th- threat to the state of Israel. If you think your country is about to be obliterated, I guess that's when you start to have those discussions. That's and, why you have them, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thought process there. So Kissinger eventually offered military aid. Uh, this was called Operation Nickel Glass, and the tide turned in Israel's favor, and they were able to, to push back uh, against the advances. Uh, if you really want to read more about this, there's a great book written in 1998 by Avner Cohen called Israel and the Bomb that talks quite a bit about this particular uh, phase in Israel's nuclear history. There's no evidence that, that there was a plane flying around with 
Okay, so that's that's this is this is movie plot device, book plot, yeah. but it makes sense. I don't know, John. This this seems like a pretty credible setup to me. Yeah, I mean, there there's some. Um, I I would be surprised if I don't know. I'd be I'd be surprised if it was just one aircraft flying around on its own. You know, would you would you put it over hostile um, territory or would you keep it? You know, in your in your own airspace. Mm-hmm. But that's detail, isn't it? It works as a as a device to get the. It's an easier device to get the to get a, a nuclear warhead out in the wild than, than would be having it on a on a um, a missile of some sort. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested in how that played out with regard to the sort of Israeli um, deterrence plan because that that strikes me as um, I didn't know any of that, that that you've just said, and it strikes me as a bit of a failure in in the deterrent that um, they could get to that get to that point and then have to use their what's supposed to be their deterrent capability to influence an ally. A lot of countries have had weapons uh, in, for that exact purpose. So South Africa had a very robust nuclear weapons program. They built, I think it's around 12 or so nuclear devices that they could have assembled and, and put put into the field, but they never tested them. They never had an intention of putting them on weapons that they could be delivered, uh, maybe aircraft potentially. But their thought was a bomb in the basement. It's something that we have that we can use. And if it got to the point where the Soviet Union looked like it was going to use its its proxies and nearby countries around South Africa that it would because they were involved in civil conflicts there. If it looked like it was going to get bad, that they were going to get overrun. Then they were going to test a weapon near the border, and then that would bring the international community into to, to help them. But they never intended, as far as we know, to use it against the enemy. It was going to be a test. Look, this is going to this is getting bad. International community step in to stop it. Right. Israel's weapons are kind of a mix between the two of those. Is it a deterrence failure? That's a really good argument. That's certainly an argument that a lot of people who think that we should get rid of nuclear weapons, they always point to the fact that Israel has bombs, but it's been invaded a number of occasions since it had it. But I guess the thought there is, well, because they weren't forwardly deployed at that time, there wasn't a credibility that Israel would actually use the weapons uh, at a certain point. Those are these are real questions, and it takes a long time for deterrence, especially under these unique situations of people not having an overt nuclear program. Where do you draw the lines? I guess it's it's different um, as well because it's they're kind of in the in the what I guess the the Russians and the Americans would refer to as tactical weapons. Mm-hmm. They, they don't. It doesn't really have the same. There's a there would need to be a further escalation into a strategic exchange for it to be globally devastating so right. i guess it, it doesn't quite occupy the the minds of big powers in the same way i don't know maybe it does but um well, one of the things that i was i was curious by the movie is it's one jet with one tactical weapon obviously this is not the start of a continual war fight using nuclear weapons to like destroy tank battalions and because tactical weapons are meant to be used on the battlefield in small situations uh strategic weapons are the the usually they tend to be larger they're launched by missiles further away they target cities they target the other side's nuclear weapons they're meant to be more like the strategic deterrence and tactical weapons are battlefield weapons there's the line isn't super clear but 20 kilotons it's not the the smallest nuclear weapon ever it's larger than the one that was used against hiroshima which was around 16 kilotons it's still what was the purpose of this this jet were they going to launch one weapon, drop one weapon, and then say, we have more that we could use? That sounds like the plan. Got shades of escalate to de-escalate, isn't it? Right, exactly. Sort of... We have more that we can do. We're holding something back. Now it's your, the ball is in your court, but we can do more if we need to. Yeah. We were talking about this before we started. Uh, this movie is just full of all these scenes that elicit all these questions. Because the movie is so full of these like rich details and 
I, you could just pick all this apart for hours. But it, to me, it, once I started thinking about this more, just if you just watch it on face value, you're like, oh, okay, plane, nuclear weapon, whatever. But then you start thinking about all these questions like, why is the plane flying so low to the ground? What is the plane going to do? Is it actually going to drop the bomb? All these kind of things you just start thinking about. And it's just an interesting uh, feature of, I guess, a Tom Clancy movie where, mm-hmm. yeah, th- you start to get into this stuff. It's a very interesting premise to start the film because then you're always wondering, well, is this movie going to be about uh, Israel? Is it going to be about the, the Middle East? No, it's not because the next scene we see, and I kind of really like the way the movie starts to do transitions where it starts. It's like a satellite, a satellite yeah, spy satellite, satellite. Photo of where they're going to be, yeah. Accurate spy satellite of the next place we're about to go to, which is called Mount Weather, Virginia. Uh, it is a continuity of government location where civilian officials uh, would go to, and the White House would go to that particular facility to fight a nuclear war, to survive a conflict. There's a couple other locations. Raven Rock out in Pennsylvania is where the Pentagon would go. Uh, Greenbrier Resort used to be the place where Congress would go. They probably would go to Mount Weather now. So we, we accurate satellite imagery. We scan down, and then we see the president doing a little West Wing walk and talk with the rest of the his cabinet, and he's in there. Yeah, it's like quick camera cuts and like right. tough talk about, you know, there's a situation in Russia. I guess there's there's been a coup and uh, there's an incoming nuclear strike the, the the 12 to 15 megaton bombs really huge huge weapons yeah and they're, they're talking about there was this coup in russia a rogue general has has taken control they don't know you know who's in power and all this kind of thing i guess president goes to defcon one and then the military commander starts the whole process to actually get the nuclear briefcase out, Mm -hmm. the football out, and start to go through that. Yep, they run through. They say they're 25 minutes from a strike. Uh, There's incoming weapons from subs. There's incoming SS-18 missiles from really... And they keep dropping names and stuff, accurate locations for all where all these things tend to be stored. Uh, president goes to DEFCON 1. The military commander there says it'll take one minute from when the order is given to when the weapons are, I guess, missiles are in the air. Uh, they start to, the process. There's an ID check. Yeah. Uh, the president pulls out a card from his jacket and he says fifth from the bottom. Or sorry, fifth from the top. There's a mention of a two-man rule and the national security advisor steps up and does something. He authenticates the order. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it looks bad, right? Yeah, it looks really bad. So, John, I'm going to ask ask you when you were watching this did did you you think this was a real thing that was going on or did you have some suspicion that this might be a when i watched it the first time as far as i can remember i kind of had my suspicions that okay yeah (laughs) this is this is gonna be they're not gonna that we're not going into a full strategic exchange like two minutes in surely that's going to be a really so are they going to be like the bleak is that we're looking at threads too or um it's going to be a pretty pretty long slog um so no i i did have um i did have uh, my my suspicions that it was a a drill and it kind of does a good job of describing the way it's supposed to work so you've got a frame of reference Mm -hmm. for later on in the film yeah it's a really great setup yeah no so sure enough yeah it is it is a drill the president i think gets a call from his wife about some gala event but what i'd want to i guess uh, bookmark for later is i thought it was interesting that during this drill part everything's like so orderly Mm -hmm. and it's almost like they're they're just following the script and everyone's acting very rationally and calm and saying you do this i'm gonna do this you're gonna do this and it all works like clockwork uh, in this drill, so I'll, I'll just we'll we'll check mark that for later. I, I love that part. I, my also my favorite part was that uh, the wife calls, and I I could see a world where if you didn't know what was happening, you're like, oh, he's gonna say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then no, it's like, all right, we're gonna have to cancel this. That was funny. That was, I, I really I, when I saw that again, I was like, that's kind of funny. That's yeah. a good line. Yeah. So okay, so. 
is does this kind of stuff happen? I mean, do, will they get the president and everyone together to do this kind of thing on a regular basis? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we talked about Matt Weather quite a lot on a recent podcast episode that we did about Madam Secretary, the the TV show with Tia Leone, uh, where she's a the Secretary of State. So if you want more about that, go check that episode out. This process, these drills, they actually get pretty good in the movie, not the book, but the movie. These drills happen quite a lot. It's one of the last thing you do as a civilian before you become the president. Usually, this is done at Blair House which is a place right next to the White House where the presidents tend to stay before they are, are inaugurated. The military comes in and they run through the drill and they say, here's here's what would happen. Here's how you use the deterrent because otherwise, if they don't know what they're doing, Russians or whoever could start a war on the first day as soon as they're inaugurated and have the power. Do you know, um, like, do, do new presidents get any, uh, they, get the, they get the process, the procedure of how to... Um how to actually fire the, the missiles or, or you know um, to to give the order do you know if they get any like a, a primer on nuclear strategy nuclear thinking and and you know um, how these things actually function and what the effects are because so I was going through um, a phase of training when when President Trump was inaugurated mm -hmm. that focused a lot on international relations and everything else one of the concerns was here's a guy who's who's you know out with everything else he's never served in government before he's probably not been exposed to these issues and and the the real horrible facts about how these things work i'm sure he's seen but, the movie so uh, oh yeah you're probably <laughs> it's probably fine yeah <laughs> Uh, um, do, you, do you know if they get a if they if they get anything like that or is it just yeah you know, well you're the president now so it's kind of your call but you can launch the nukes at any moment. So I remember when I was uh, reading an old uh, Bob Woodward book, I think about the Bush White House. They talked a little bit about the training that goes on after election but before inauguration, and they do receive a crash course on a lot of stuff, including strategic de deterrence issues and and things like that, war fighting. They're not given the drill and how to use the weapons until. They're almost inaugurated, but they're given the information. A crash course. It's one of those things. Obama wanted a lot of information. So he got a ton of briefings on Pakistan, on North Korea, wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan. I don't know. I haven't read the Bob, the latest Bob Woodward book, so I don't know how much of that Trump got because uh, he was going through a lot of other issues at the time. I think it's one of those things you get it when you want it. Okay. I'm not sure if he, he's done one of these Mount Weather drills. But they do do those things quite a lot. They'll run through war fighting things, and sometimes they bring the principal in. Other times it's other people that'll be in the room. The rest of the drill looked pretty good. You know, some things that we see, the card that the president brings out, it's called, you know, nicknamed the biscuit. It is a list. It's like a, a baseball card sized uh, card with a list of codes, and the president has to know which of them are real and which of them are decoys. That is the most important thing. You pull out that card, you say the fifth from the top, and then you read Normally you read it, but I guess if the guy's in the room, you can just say yeah. fifth from the top. Uh, and that is the code that says the president is who they say they are. Gotcha. And that's kind of it. That's yeah. all you need to launch uh, to launch an attack. The two-man rule, the way it works in reality, is the president issues the order. They need someone on the other side. The, usually it's the secretary of defense, but it can also be the national security advisor, the secretary of state down the line has to say, yes, this is the president. This is a correct order. Not like correct in the sense of what they're going to do, but that is the president. If that person says no, the president can fire that person and go down to the next person. And they go down until they find someone that will agree to do it. Wait, what? Are you serious? There's no veto power over the president's use of nuclear weapons. So so all they're agreeing to is that they, they know that it is the president. They're not agreeing to the, 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 yeah, I agree that we should ca carry it. Wow. Yeah. That's it. 
So that's, that, that's what two. That's, it's not the same thing as in a uh, launch facility bunker, yeah. a silo, or a submarine where two people need to turn a key at the same time. Otherwise, it won't work. It's not like that. That's very interesting. No, and I thought it was a check on, you know, you need somebody else to, like, confirm the decision and, you know, a check on the president's power. There's uh, no check. The only thing wow. you can do is you can refuse an order, but that's not the system. That's the system breaking down. Uh, the rule is that there's, you need a second person to authenticate that the president is who they say they are and that the order is correct. Well, thank you, Tim. You know, every time on the, I come on this podcast, I'm usually not able to sleep for a week. So I thank you for um, <laughs> well, that's the whole thing for people, uh, achieving yeah. that objective again. Now, there is stuff in the news in the last couple of weeks where some people have said that because now the Secretary of Defense has resigned, Jim Mattis. And there are reports that said that he inserted himself into the process and said, do not let the president receive an order that there's an incoming strike and let him decide to actually launch without calling me because I will do something about it. Wow. That's what the people have said that no one has come out and said that that's correct. There's been it's mostly just rumors and things like that. If they did that, it would be one of the biggest destroying the rules of civilian uh, military relations Ever. I mean, that I can think of in terms of the use of nuclear weapons. Yeah. So it is in the news, but it's not the way it's supposed to work. So it would be a usurping of the policy. One one more thing here is um, I love certain things in this movie. One of them is the nuclear football is way more realistic than other films because it's just a fancy telephone. There's so no it has, wire sticking out of it. There's no There's, there's no biometric, yeah, like yeah, put your hand right. on it and it scans or there's no video conferencing or flashing lights and things. It's basically a telephone. There's no red button. There's no launch button on these things. It's just a communication device that allows the president to talk to the National Command Authority. I, so they're very accurate there. I like that quite a bit. Usually in the briefcase, there's the uh, the phone. There's an options book, a nuclear attack options book that they can flip through in case they need to remember what the codes are, like what type of strike plan they're going to do. And there's also usually a line of succession document and a list of like sites for them to go to, cont- continuity of government sites. Uh, they mention in, in the movie and in the book that it takes one minute from when the order is given before missiles are in the air. They may not have known that at the time, but it's actually closer to four, five minutes between there. Uh, usually it's considered to be four minutes, which okay. is important when you're talking about a 30-minute window from when missiles are launched to when they land in the United States from Russia. It's shorter if they're subs on the coastline of the United States. Uh, 30 minutes. So the difference between one minute and four minutes is really a big deal when it takes like 15 minutes to confirm this incoming strike. You have to wake the president up if it's nighttime. Yeah. You have to brief the president and they have like five minutes to decide and run through this process. Wow. It takes me longer to decide what to have for lunch. <laughs> it takes me longer to wake up. <laughs> uh, one minute. They keep saying one minute over and over again. It's closer to four, but that is something that gets brought up quite a lot. It was brought up in the presidential debates between Hillary and uh, and Trump. They they brought up the fact that it takes four minutes. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And once the order is given, can it be pulled back? Do you, like let's say you're you know three minutes in, can you say you know abort the strike? Uh, yes. Okay. okay. You can you can do that until. The, ter- the keys are turned. Gotcha. Once the keys are turned for a missile silo, there's nothing you can do. Okay. No, that gives me a little bit more comfort. Maybe I'll sleep a little bit more at night that there's an extra three minutes uh, that you can decide to call it off. The The scene was filmed and kind of uh, interesting, uh, an actual bunker, but in Canada, uh, a place uh, in Carp, Ontario, Canada. It was designed for the Canadian government, including the prime minister. That's where they would set out uh, a nuclear attack. That scene, not too bad. So if you want to see how this stuff works... Uh, that's that's a pretty good rep- demonstration of it. Uh, the CIA director uh, is there. Again, I'm not really sure why the CIA director is there. That's not really their job to be involved in the launch process. Well, I think he's, maybe you could say, because 
in the movie, I think he's like buddies with the mm. president. They're like old friends. So maybe somehow he's like given some special, yeah, special. The president wanted to help his bro out, you know. And it's probably good for the CIA director to know the process. Sure. But they would not be involved in the process. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the that CIA director says that they should drill against someone else other than Russia because all they do is constantly Russia, Russia, Russia. President has this funny line about if you know of anyone else that's got twenty seven thousand nukes, uh, then we'll drill against them. The president, the CIA director says, well, I'm really worried about the guy with one nuke, which is quite foreshadowing, right? And twenty seven thousand is that? I know you're gonna have some <laughs> have something to say about this number, Tim. Uh, it's 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 higher than it probably was okay. in the two thousands. It's unclear when this movie is supposed to have taken place. It's probably meant to be taking place during the Bush years, because there's a reference in one of the speeches to Clinton. So in the early two thousands, Russia, according to the the Nuclear Notebook, which is a great resource people can use, Hans Christensen and Robert Norris, two great nuke scholars, put this thing together. It's closer to about eight thousand strategic weapons that the Russians had and four thousand tactical nuclear weapons in the early two thousands. Gotcha. Okay. They might be counting weapons that Russia had that were in line for dismantlement. All of that process, which some of them could have been re- recalled and used again. They're like weapons and storage. Some of them are broken. Some of them are taken off the line for any number of reasons. But sure, 27,000. That's pretty high, but... Yeah, they just rounded up to the... They rounded up to the nearest 27,000. Well, I wonder, because it's on the poster. The movie poster is 27,000 nuclear uh, weapons in the world. One of them has gone missing. That's the tagline of the movie. Gotcha. Uh, so this movie version of Russia, it's a weakened country with an aged leader, very old, uh, economic problems at home violence in chechnya and way too many nukes that's kind of where we are uh, and, and and this is how we get uh we get jack ryan in right because mm-hmm. i think he's with his analyst buddies in the cia and they're kind of you know lower it, it, it's like a lower level office they're really wonky they're watching tv and commenting i think on the russian leaders like diet and whether his coat fits and yeah so they're, they're an open cube concept open office concept uh, yeah, right, right exactly so they can talk to ahead each other of its time but no i thought it was interesting because i mean where you see jack ryan go the first introduction to him is really this lower level analyst. He's he's digging into this minutia, and you know he's he's kind of in in the, uh, in the on the lower decks of the CIA, so to speak. Yeah, he seems to be a Russia expert. You know, he doesn't know a lot about everything, but his thing, his specialty is Russia, uh, which reminds me of George Kennan, uh, who was a State Department official who was a huge Russia expert during a time where a lot of people who were considered Russia experts were considered communists. You know, you know why would he be focused on Russia? He concerned about bigger things like, you know, war fighting or international relations writ large or political things. But George Kennan was a Russia expert, a regional expert, and he wrote a very famous article in Foreign Affairs, in uh, which is a magazine published by the Council on Foreign Relations. I used to work there, so I, Foreign Affairs, I still get the, the issues every month. This article is called The Sources of Soviet Conduct, where he outlines why Russia could not be bargained with. It needed to be contained. It will continually, because of insecurity, want to take over more and more of its peripheral non-communist places you have to stop it and that formed the entire cold war u.s strategy against russia because they were wondering what do you do do you appease russia do you attack russia george kennan who wrote the article under the pseudonym x because it wasn't official state department policy at the time people in the know knew he wrote it but it was not public for a long time just an example of someone who's a russia expert who kind of shaped cold war strategy against russia and that, that didn't come from the president or the president's advisors it came from a state department like russia expert John, why don't you maybe introduce the villains here? Because we we get the first uh, we get the first glimpse. Yeah, so uh, the bad guys seem to be uh, a, a sort of collection of European or maybe global um, neo-fascist. The the initial 
scene that we see with them is the the head of this group who's an Austrian industrialist uh, giving a speech about how um, you know Europe has been treated as the the children you know the the uh, the child in the relationship between um, you know with the US or in relationship with Russia he's sort of um, venting his spleen about this and and saying you know it's it's time that we took on a, a greater role in the world the things that he's saying are not necessarily overtly fascist or um, mm-hmm. you know conforming to a national socialist uh, agenda uh, but you get that uh, that kind of um, dolly shot around the podium to reveal his gold watch on the on the podium and inscribed on the uh, on the back of the watch is uh, a swastika so it's quite subtly pointed out that you know here's a man who's talking about Europe taking on a greater role being disenfranchised with the um, the kind of bipolar um, arrangement of, of uh, superpowers um, and uh, you know footnote he's also a huge Nazi um, <laughs> and it just gives you that uh, that sense it made me think he probably keeps that watch on when he goes like swimming or he has to check his, imagine going through an airport and yeah, so yeah, you're going to have yeah. to take your watch off. Oh dear. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, it's a pre nine 11. So you have to, you have to take all that stuff off at the, at the TSA. Uh, <laughs> at least he's not blaming immigrants. You know, I think if this was movie was done today, that would be what it is. But yeah. Yeah. It's a little different. That's I know fair. you have to find the shades here. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's, that's who we start to introduce. Like this guy, we don't know what his point is in terms of the story, but I don't like him. Yeah. I already don't like him. Uh, so let's cut back to the desert. Gabe, why don't you handle yeah, so this one? so remember that bomb we talked about from 1973? Well, it's back. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, there's some some dudes out in the desert, uh, I guess, uh, scout, looking for treasure. Uh, they had their metal detectors out, and they came across the bomb from the plane that got shot down. They don't They don't know what it is. They they say, oh, this looks like a bomb. One of the guys says, oh, this is crap. Let's you know, let's just get out of here. And the other one's like touching it, and he puts his hand inside the panel and says, oh, it's warm. Like, what could that mean? And you know, we all know that that this is the nuke, and they're. I guess the idea is that they really have no yeah. no clue what this is. Uh, they want to sell this for money, but they don't know what they've come across. And plutonium is warm to the touch because it's undergoing spontaneous fission. You can hold it. And it feels it's not like searing, but it's warm. Well, there was a, there was that line. There's it, later in the movie they yeah. show these uh, nuclear technicians, and the one takes out the plutonium sphere, mm. and he's like, "Ah, the warmth of <laughs> plutonium, like plutonium decay." It's yeah. Well, one, I don't know. I, I've never touched a nuclear bomb before in my life, uh, but I, I imagine that the warmth does not come through all of the metal casing and the sphere, the other bomb parts, the conventional explosives that are around the core. And it's noticeably different than the desert, right? Like, yeah, the bomb's hot. It's in the desert. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, so I think it was at nighttime. Maybe that's yeah, why. Yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, then we cut to President Zorkin, uh, who was the, the, the old-aged uh, leader, and he's talking about fake news and why people are talking that he's, his health is not so good. He's very robust for his age. And then just like collapses due to poor health. And this is really, this is how we get Jack Ryan into the, yeah. into the game really. Cause I, I, you know, I think through this, it comes out that I, there's a scene, Jack Ryan's with his um, girlfriend, Kathy, uh, Kathy. And um, you, you know, we talked about this before the, this is where the dial, this is maybe where they lost some stars on Rotten Tomatoes. Tom Clancy's not great at writing, you know, pillow talk. Uh, he should stick to. Did I don't know? Did he write this movie? Uh, I, I maybe, imagine maybe not. Yeah, because in in the book he's already Jack Ryan is like married. Yeah, sure, sure. He's accused sure. of having an affair. Like he's at he's at that point of his gotcha. relationship already. You know, they're kind of cuddling, and he gets a call and says, "I, I got to run." 
she's like, well, what does a historian have to do? So clearly he's li- he's been lying to her. He's been covering up his job. But I-, I guess, you know, he gets called in because they're like, oh, you wrote this paper. This guy that you thought was going to be next to to be the leader of Russia, uh, Alexander Nemirov, uh, he's actually the, the latest guy. And we need you to come to a briefing right away. And, and I mean, really, you have this lower level guy, Jack Ryan, and the CIA director basically comes, grabs him. It's like the top dude saying i need you for a briefing now mm-hmm. you know on Cap- on capitol hill right away he's and, not he's not dressed for it yeah no he doesn't have a tie so they have to steal a jacket from somebody and uh cabot's kind of william cabot is is briefing him along the way saying C- cia director yeah yeah saying don't you know don't say anything stupid just just talk when you need to blah 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 they finally get into this briefing which it's like a super briefing room. It's not a. Um, it's not like a traditional hearing, uh, congressional hearing mm-hmm. or Senate hearing. But it's in this like glass case that becomes opaque when everyone walks in, and there's like no sound leaking. So you know that this is like the top, the top, top level. Now I don't. This is outside of my uh, area of expertise, but there are places called SCIFs, uh, secure departmental information facility. That's not what it is, but something along those lines where there are facilities like this where you're allowed to read and receive briefings on classified information. Okay. Congress has one. The White House has a couple different places where you can do this. Yeah. No. Um, it, yeah, it was cool. And during the briefing, you know, um, the CIA director, William Cabot, he's very calm and composed. Jack Ryan's kind of sitting in the back trying to, like, whisper to him and and he kind of says, you know, I, you, you speak when you're speak when you're told to speak. Yeah. Sorry. off just saying what to say to get the hardliners off his back. If we leave him alone, Russia will stabilize if we push him all bets out. When I asked for your advice, I didn't mean that you should actually speak. Yes, sir. Mr. Cabot. I think the scene ends with, like, you know, welcome to the CIA sport, because... He knows about uh, some detail of his personal life. Yeah, and he knows about Kathy. Yeah, and he knows he about Kathy. So it's kind of, and this is like through the movie. There, we'll we'll get to that at the end. But um, it's a start of a theme, isn't it? I, th- I yeah. thought this film should could equally have been called the perpetual sexual frustration of Ben Affleck <laughs> because <laughs> he's great. just every time something is about to kick off, he's he's either in bed or in some other slightly compromising but hopefully getting more compromising situation. <laughs> And it's dragged away by the CIA for more important stuff. Yeah, the big thing is that Congress thinks that the new president is a hardliner who will invade Chechnya and will be a problem for the United States. Uh, Jack Ryan and, the, and CIA director Cabot do not think that that's the case. They think this guy is he's going to say tough things because he, he's at a vulnerable position internally and domestically. But he's not like going to be a problem unless we make him a problem. Yeah. Uh, so let's cut back to... A lot of cuts, a lot of fast yeah, changing no, scenes. Yeah. We'll cut back to a tent where there's an arms dealer uh, from South Africa who discovers the bomb. I guess they must have made a phone call because he's originally, I think this guy is based in Damascus, yeah. uh, Syria. So And he, so this this South African, he's part of this neo-fascist group. I think he's just a dude. He oh, just, no. He's an okay. arms dealer. Guy. Okay. So he's just, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure. So he, he realized it's it's a nuke. He's, 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 he's watched a movie or two. Uh, he's a podcast listener. Uh, he realized this is a nuke. And he says to the scrap dealers, like, oh, it's this is junk. It doesn't even work. But 400 bucks. How about that? And, so, and like dumb negotiators, the other guys yeah. are like, okay, yeah. Well, $400, I don't, probably a big deal. A really, uh, a real point of realism. You know, the, the, the guys are, I think they're in the book, at least they're Druze farmers. So mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're used to scratching around in the desert, pulling stuff out and getting a good rate for it, the chance of him just nodding along and and oh yeah thanks very much four hundred dollars wow yeah. yeah 
the South African arms dealer says, there was a lot of fighting in 73, right? Do you remember about a, an airplane, an A-4 that was that went down? And they're like, yeah, it was shot down. It was a really big deal. We all knew about this story, which makes sense. That could have been something that people would have heard about. Yeah. Uh, and then he realizes, oh, I've, I've heard a story about a nuclear weapon that went missing. Yeah, right. This is what this is. The South African arms dealer is really good because at some point the farmer mentions that he lost a son in the fighting. And he's, and the, the arms dealer is like, this is junk, but in honor of your son, I will give you $400. Right, yeah. Oh, that is, you know this guy's a bad guy. So the guy goes back, the arms dealer, he goes on Cra- Craigslist or something. Uh, and I the think dark, he, he's on the dark web. He's on the dark web. He, he emails the guy, the, the turns out to be the Austrian industrialist and says, I found what you were looking for. It's a an Israeli-made Mark 12 fission bomb, and I'll sell it to you for $50 million U.S. And the guys, you can see, the I think the Austrian's on the other end, and he's like smoking a cigarette, drinking port. I don't know what he's drinking. Yeah. Pure, pure grain alcohol and rainwater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. And he agrees. Uh, so a little bit here, the Mark 12 or B-12 is a U.S.-made nuclear weapon. It was retired in the late 1950s. So it's kind of interesting to see that it's involved in fighting later. I think that it's implied that the U.S. gave Israel the bomb design, or at least the plutonium. It's a U.S. bomb. It's a, it's dropped by an airplane. Uh, it's a gravity bomb. It's It will go off when it reaches a certain altitude. Uh, that's kind of how the, that's how the trigger will work on that. It's very light. That's a particularly interesting component to that history because it was one of the first warhead designs that used a reflector around the plutonium core. So you didn't need as much plutonium because the way it would work is uh, when you start to have fission, the neutrons will try to, mostly empty space, they're going to try to escape. Uh, So you need lots of plutonium in a very tight place so that there's there's no way to escape. But a reflector means that those neutrons will bounce back and then have a more likely chance of hitting. Increase the probability of hitting. So... Using this reflector, though, it's an incredibly light bomb relative to the other ones. It had a yield of either 12 or 14 kilotons, depending on how you designed it. It was made by Los Alamos uh, National Lab. Its code name was Brock, B-R-O-K. Don't know what that means, but it's a probably a random code name. It weighed about 1,200 pounds or 545 kilograms, about 12 feet long, 22 inches in diameter. So kind of a long-gated bomb, not the prop that they made for the movie yeah which the was movie this... was like short and fat almost yeah. yeah and the funny thing about that is <laughs> when they, they made this prop they couldn't actually load it onto the a4 that they had access to it was too heavy so they had to cgi in the bomb while the plane was flying oh really yeah so this oh, is like 2000s era cgi so they had to matte paint the cgi on uh, matte paint but they had to paint on the cgi for the bomb when it was flying because it was too big for the actual plane who could carry a real Mark 12. People's envision, envision of like what a nuclear bomb looks like, it probably is like a fat man bomb yeah, and right. not an elongated missile, which just looks like a missile, right? Or yeah. a, a dropped bomb or something. So I think the next the next part of the movie I found super interesting, actually. Um, this is all about a, um, a an inspection, uh, a nuclear yeah. inspection in Russia. And, and I guess earlier in the movie, William Cabot, the CIA director, says he wants to go personally. And I guess because of Jack Ryan's influence, he brings him along. So there's a scene of them on, a, on an airplane and um, Jack Ryan has to call his uh, girlfriend from the plane to cancel their dinner date. And there's this great scene. William Cabot says, oh, tell her, tell her who you work for. Tell her what you're doing. He's like, hello, Kathy. I can't make it. Where are you going? I can't tell you that. Jack, tell her where you're going. In fact, tell her who you work for. She'll be impressed. I work for the CIA. And the director asked me at the last minute to come with him to Russia to do a nuclear arms inspection. That is so lame. Hello? 
she like hangs up. She's like, that's lame. <laughs> like, screw Just you. Another like, opportunity for the CIA to screw over his relationship. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, there's strike two. Uh, it, I thought that was really funny. But no, so so this was, and they mentioned the treaty that this inspection yeah. happens under? Start. S-T-A-R-T. Okay. Which I think you've talked about on the podcast. But, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So this is the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. So it's, it's like an ATM machine, an automated teller machine, in the sense that the last word is also the last letter of the abbreviation. It was signed in 1991. After the end of the, the Cold War, the Soviet Union has collapsed. What this led to was huge reductions, 80% reductions in the number of nuclear weapons in the world. And in, as part of that, there were very intrusive and continual inspections that either side could do to verify that the bombs were actually being dismantled, that the missiles were being dismantled. Start one allowed for 28 on-site inspections per year. So quite a number of inspections. Some of them, according to a, a really good summary by the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a think tank here in D.C., uh, some of those inspections are called short notice. We call you and we're going to be there in two days kind of thing uh, so that you can't hide information that fast. Tests about the baseline data, uh, data updates, reentry vehicle tests, things like that. But there are also planned ones that are on a more regular schedule. And these are things like verification of uh, the technical data that's being shared between uh, the countries about their bombs and the right to observe the elimination of missiles and, and other facilities, things like that, which is what they're on here. Uh, a little bit of history. the In the first seven years of this treaty, when these reductions were taking place, the U.S. conducted 335 inspections and Russia did 243. Uh, there were data exchanges about the types of weapons, the locations, their movements. All this stuff was shared, which was a really incredible asset for the military because otherwise the military has to do worst case planning. We don't know how many you have. We don't know where there are. We need more weapons so that we can account for errors in our intelligence. But if this information is shared and verified, they can have significant reductions on their own side. That's kind of why arms control is so valuable uh, as, a, as a tool. If you can verify it, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, this, was ex- this treaty expired in 2009 and was replaced by the New START treaty. Uh, a new start. Yeah, a new start. <laughs> Would the CIA typically be, because this is like, that's what was a weird thing to me. The CIA yeah. director, the, the top guy at the CIA is personally going on this inspection. Is that something you would expect? No. Uh, the I think it makes sense in the movie once the president is like the, the Russian president dies and there's a new president because I can see a world where the CIA would be sending someone to talk to that person to be like, all right, let's because they're high level. They have the trust of the president, right? The, they're friends. But that was planned. This trip was planned with the CIA director before the Russian president died. It kind of kind of makes sense once they get in and he says, oh, um, you know, we sent however many people it was to, to try and get in this place and loads of them died. And I personally yeah. sent, I think he says I sent four or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of got the impression that, ah, right. Okay. So that's why he's, he's here uh, is because he wants to, to come and see for himself and kind of be present and, and have that kind of moment. But I, maybe it's just a point that's in there for, for realism. It doesn't seem to drive the plot. I think most people would have picked up on, or why is the CIA director there? Perhaps they would, but, um, the CIA is a spy agency. You don't want to send a spy agency as a sign of trust building between two countries. You send the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. They, they, it's within the Department of Defense in the U.S. They form the inspection teams, and these are a mix of military and a mix of civilian people who are experts in these topics. It used to be called the On-Site Inspection Agency before uh, START was created. And uh, Stitcher would also do inspections in Russia. They would also escort Russian inspectors when they would come to the United States. They weren't always friendly. You know, the, one of the jokes in this movie is that 
the the Russians are like leery of the U.S. being in those rooms with the nuclear weapons. And one of the guys who was the a former deputy director at Ditra, Jim Leary, Jim Leahy. Uh, said that there was a level of uncertainty between the U.S. and Russia during those early days of start. Our Russian counterparts were used to working with us, but in many instances, the military and civilian support personnel at Russia start sites had never seen or worked with Americans. Most of them were suspicious, some were curious, others were indifferent. All they knew about Americans, good or bad, came from movies and or what they read in their propaganda newspapers. So our teams had to keep that in mind during the initial inspections. So there was... A, a sense of trust they had to build. And it probably wouldn't have made that trust process easy if you started to send in the CIA. Yeah, right. Well, for better or for worse, they're there. I guess before going to the actual um, arms site, they, they do a quick stop at the um, in Moscow to meet with the new Russian mm-hmm. president. There's this kind of scene where uh, he's uh, the Russian president getting his uh, his portrait, his uh, prom photos taken, and, <laughs> and he's uh, he kind of indicates that he knows Jack Ryan, and they have like a little exchange where... The Russian president speaking Russian, and then Jack Ryan speaks Russian back and says, oh, I know you speak English, and they laugh. You must be the Dr. Ryan who has done such interesting research on me. Neodivletis. We the Volnem You should not be surprised by this. We know quite a bit. La premier, For instance, we know how wrong you were in your report that I had many girlfriends in college. Na samam dile. Posli tavo I met my wife in my third year and have not looked at another woman since. I was referring to the first two years. Sir. I like you. Well, in that case, so do I. Which is a funny line. Yeah, he's he was that was that was quite a quite a nice way to um sort of build a bit of um rapport between the two characters i guess so that that's very on, important for later yeah yeah but yeah it was quite funny wasn't it you know i've, I've uh, i think he says i uh, i met my wife uh, at college and i've never i've not looked at another woman since and there's kind of a beat and then um you know jack ryan responds in in russian effectively calling him out and saying you know where you got really good grades in english so kind of let's <laughs> shall we cut through the bs here and, yeah, uh, and yeah. get down to brass tacks um, and you can kind of see, uh, yeah, Cabot looking a bit nervous until the, until the the president uh, does the the classic bad sort of pseudo bad guy thing of, of oh I like I like him he's a he's a strong guy kind of friendly punch on the arm sort of thing like all oh, right yeah everything's cool everything's defused that's brilliant and and Jack Ryan then earns a little bit of trust uh, and. Uh... Yeah, respect of yeah. the of the CIA director as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, the, so the team then goes to the nuclear inspection site where they're dismantling weapons. The, they call this Arzamaz 16. So the tour guide says this is where the, the birthplace of the Russian nuclear weapon. So I will just go a little bit of detail here because this is a real site. Uh, it was established in April of 1946. Uh, its mission was to design and produce nuclear explosive test devices as well as to produce a deliverable bomb. Uh, and Russia, yeah, their first weapon, their atomic weapon and their hydrogen bomb were designed there. This was really referred to as the Russian Los Alamos. Uh, and funny enough, after the end of the Cold War, those two cities, Arsimov 16 and Los Alamos, became official sister cities. Really? Yeah. Wow. In, in 1993. You know, because there's exchanges, scientists like to talk to each other. Even during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union had lots of uh, experiments together. Scientists tend to want to work together for the purposes of science and not always considered each other like antagonists. 
one of the kind of interesting things about this place as well, it was renamed since 1995. It had another name, but it became Sarov, S-A-R-O-V. It's no longer called Arzamash 16, but maybe the people who work there, old habits, die hard kind of thing. Uh, we see scenes of missile warheads being dismantled and, and taken apart. This is true. Arzamash 16 was one of four what are called serial production facilities in Russia, where you assemble and disassemble nuclear weapons. Uh, around year year 2000 is when those uh, there was only four of those, and Arzamaz was one of them. Its specialty was to manufacture, refurbish, and dismantle the warhead physics package. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the CIA director says that he tried to get into this site with spies before, yeah. but they were all died. Westerners, though, did visit Arzamaz in October of 1990. There were a lot of joint experiments and engagements since then. So it wasn't the first time that anyone had gotten there, but he probably is meaning a spy who would work there and gain intel and they've caught the person and killed him, all that stuff. I think the most important thing here is that Jack Ryan was looking at the manifest and he says that... According to this, there are 17 senior scientists on duty today. I only count 14. There's three scientists missing that are supposed to be there. Uh, there's a uh, an old hand Russian guy who they joke that he's been around since the Cold War. He knows where all the bodies are buried. He probably buried some of them himself. And he has a, a document that says, oh, one of them is out sick. The other one on vacation. On vacation. And the third one died in a car crash. And yeah, actually, um, you know, it's a little suspicious when they're on the plane ride home. Jack Ryan's talking to the CIA director and he's like, nah, they have no idea where these dudes are. They're, they've yeah. gone rogue and we don't know where they are. So uh, we also see a scene where the arms dealer is putting the weapon on a cargo container going somewhere and he's smiling. So the bomb is in movement. It's going somewhere. Does quite a lot of smirking, doesn't he? The, uh, the arms dealer has well, got a pretty good smirk. He's, he's got a, a good leer, yeah, exactly. a good smirk. So the, so the pieces are kind of coming together. We have, you know, the bomb's been now identified and, you know, is moving somewhere. We know that there, there are these missing scientists. We know that Jack Ryan's on the trail. So things are starting to come together here, yep. um, building up the plot a little bit. I thought it was, um, this is a nice time where they bring in John Clark, one of my favorite parts of this movie, because he's such a badass dude. Played by Liv Schreiber. Yep. Um, and basically... It, He's he's like the uh, one of the field guys from the Tom Clancy universe, and I guess in this movie he gets moved to a desk job. Uh, William Cabot, the CIA director, says to him, "Hey, I need you to get back out there. You know, three Russian scientists are missing. I need to know where they are. Put on put on your jersey one more time. You need to go out and, and find out what's going on here. Where are these scientists? And he doesn't want to because he knows this is wet work. He knows there's probably going to be some killing. Yep, exactly. Involved. Yeah. Quite funny how um, Cabot. Is is basically giving away all of his sources to this to this junior analyst, like you said on on the jet. They they're coming back across from from uh, from Russia, and um, he says, "Oh, you know, um, these are the three guys, and and we know they weren't where they um, the the story doesn't add up." Jack Ryan says, oh, "I'm I'm dying to know how you how you I'm dying to ask you how you how you know that." And instead of just sort of raising an eyebrow and going back to his business, uh, the the director of the CIA says to a guy who, I, I mean, I'm assuming he's been vetted, but certainly, you know, this has got to be like really high level stuff. Not only says, oh, well, no, actually, I've got a guy and he's at the top level of the Russian government. This is his code name. He turns the laptop around. And says, Look, <laughs> here's all of his, here's my message history, just in case you don't believe me. Um, you know. Well, does, doesn't he say something too like, he shares stuff with me, I share stuff yeah, with I him. Share like, stuff with him. Isn't that treason? Like, you're not supposed to be doing that. Yeah, um, and yeah, that that all goes. That just like, oh right, okay. Um, yeah, what in flight movie shall we watch? Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem to get a mention, but it is important later on. So. And this guy is codenamed Spinnaker. Oh yeah, 
Right, Spinnaker eyes. Sp- as, as in the uh, the the front sail on a on a sailboat. Yeah. Oh, whenever you see a sailboat with that big sail on the front, yeah, that you can put on, that's a spinnaker. Because he goes where the wind goes. I guess. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I'll say here that uh, I'd love another thing about this movie is that there isn't just one missing rogue scientist who can do it all. Like in Mission Impossible Fallout, where there's like one Norwegian scientist who knows everything you need to do. You give him some nuclear material, he can make a bomb. Because that's not really how it works. Most people have specialties. This information is purposely compartmentalized. So not everyone learns how to do everything. Someone, I'm sure you could learn it if you wanted to, but it's, it's hard. There are three missing scientists that each have different specialties. One knows things about detonation, so probably conventional explosives. Uh, one is a, knows about the bomb physics package, the plutonium package, and another one is math, right? There's some reference to he does the calculations. I love the fact that there are three scientists that split this up because in most movies, it's just one. Yeah, just one dude. Who knows and uh, this is really the worry is that these scientists would get pulled away, what's called brain drain, when they no longer have high paying jobs because the Soviet Union collapsed. There was a number of initiatives the United States did to stop that from happening, giving them civilian jobs, trying to find ways for them to be able to continue to have good incomes. There was this initiative called the Nuclear Cities Initiative in the late 90s that was trying to transform these cities like Arzamov 16 into civilian research, engineering, manufacturing centers of excellence uh, so that they would that they would continue to exist instead of just like collapse and then go start working for Libya or Syria or North Korea or something. Right. I, one of the things I was wondering was why if these scientists were leaving why they maybe didn't steal plutonium or a, a working bomb from their facility. Maybe because it was guarded really well or something, but this was really a concern because Russian press in March of 1993 reported that 11 kilograms of uranium-238 were stolen from Arzamas 16 Nuclear Research and Development Center. Never confirmed, but the Russian reports were about that this was happening. So I was wondering why in this world, if this guy, this South African arms dealer, has these guys on speed dial, yeah. why he didn't just ask them to Sounds steal plutonium yeah. like in their pockets or something. Maybe it was just fake news, so yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. But uh, something interesting. It's nice that they went to the effort to... to to get you know representative locations and to really go into because there's I mean for most people this level of detail is the sort of thing that you you wouldn't you know you wouldn't get in a in a film that has this kind of action like right. one or two main characters I think it's really cool that they went to the detail not only of finding you know what the name was but but inserting all these details and getting a um, even down to the location whether when they go there it's all you know it's it's really um, snowy and and I think the the film yeah. is set in like February, not far from Moscow. So that's it's all pretty realistic stuff. I yeah, I, I like that. There is a category of nuke movies that are based on like a book or a story. So Pete, the Peacemaker was originally it's based on a book, largely around this one person's story. Jessica Stern, who was a a White House staffer that dealt with loose nuclear material and it was written into a book and then it got turned into the movie i think that was called one point safe and then you have movies like this that are based on tom clancy books who goes through and does lots of research on things and because that was what he was he was an historian who had affiliation with the naval war college and then you have other movies like mission impossible which just are written by people who aren't nuke experts who are interested more in like the, the stunts and things and the nukes are more of like a MacGuffin for it. And you have those different kinds of movies and it's fun. I like both. It's refreshing to have a film where it's underscored by all of these other things. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. All right. So, well, so, so, uh, you know, the tensions get now ratcheted up another notch. We have the scene where 
to smooth things over with his girlfriend, <laughs> uh, uh, Jack Ryan takes his uh, girlfriend to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He gets a ticket from the CIA director. Actually, it was John Clark's yeah. <laughs> ticket, who now has been sent over. So the CIA director's ruining everybody's life. And... Also, I don't know why John Clark would have a ticket. Yeah, right. Yeah. But whatever, it's not important. So, and in the uh, in the drinking game of the CIA ruins uh, Jack Ryan's dating life, sure enough... <laughs> During the middle of the correspondence dinner, everyone's cell phones start going off. People, I guess, are too rude to put them on silent or vibrate. Well, pagers. And, oh, yeah, there's pagers as well. And uh, clearly there's there's some crisis or some incident. The president gets called away and you see everyone just kind of taking off um, to go, go to their posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, this reminds me of uh, when in 2011, Barack Obama was giving the national correspondence. So usually it's the president hasn't happened the last couple of years uh but usually the president will give a little bit of a, a, a comedy speech where he jokes with the media and at that point he was president obama was tr- making fun of trump like it was all in the middle of the birth certificate thing so he was yeah. cracking jokes and just earlier that day he had given the order to do the raid on osama bin laden but he was like keeping calm cool during this emergency situation wild uh, stone cold fox uh stone cold killer um so John, what what uh, what's called everybody away? Why why have they had to cut the dinner short? Yeah, so it turns out that um, they've all been uh, called away because there's a, a developing situation in uh, Chechnya uh, where the uh, the Russians have. Um, I think the uh, the briefing that the uh, that the president has in the uh, like the situation room is uh, there's been a massive artillery attack on Grozny. Um, using something called uh, a Novichok binary nerve agent, which uh, fans of current affairs in the UK might be familiar with. You know, it's a, it's the biggest, I think they say it's the the most devastating or the biggest chemical weapons attack in, in history. And at that point, I wound the wound the film back to see what the mm-hmm. figure was so I could compare it. But they just say, oh, it's, it's the death the death toll is 80%. And it's, you know, it's obviously this, this horrific attack. They reference, um, you know, everybody, men, women, children, all being... Um, caught up in this thing and there is a uh, a real appetite in the room to do something to punish the russians for for doing this and that leads into a discussion uh, about uh, what to do but also it brings in um jack ryan because he sat in the corner behind uh, cabot um as the senior staff are are deciding not so much was it russia but mm-hmm. um you know because russia really at this point um certainly as far as we're concerned in in the information we've been given in the film are the only ones with skin in the game in chechnya it's like right what are we going to do how are we going to um how are we going to uh, punish the russians and they talk about off the top of my head i think i think they talk about getting chechnya a diplomatic recognition as a as a sovereign state but not full diplomatic recognition and then get them to call in peacekeepers and, mm-hmm. and the americans will send the peacekeepers it struck me that there might need to be some uh, some discussion about the finer points of that detail maybe in the un but the you know that they they seem happy with that plan and then jack ryan um i think they ask him for his take on um on what this is all about and uh he's meant to be this russia expert and a, and a you know a an analyst but he decides to lead with um his opinion rather than you know backing it really up with any with any fact uh, jack ryan decides that he is so passionately uh, you know disagreeing with this course of action he decides to to stand up and again lead with uh, his opinion and say i what you know what if he didn't yeah. order order the um attack um the president says well are you spitballing like what what evidence um, do you have to back this up? And he says, I would bet he didn't do it. 
mm-hmm. which is maybe the sort of evidence that you know more recent presidents are used to um, dealing <laughs> with, but it doesn't seem to doesn't go down too well in in the room. Uh, the president says, "Yeah, senior staff remain behind. Everyone else um, get out, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna carry on talking about the nuts and bolts of this thing." Yeah, and unfortunately for Jack Ryan, immediately on television, the Russian president says, "Yeah, I did it. Yeah. I ordered I ordered it. No problem." But but in secret in an elevator talking to the the guy who knows where all the bodies are buried dude yeah and it, it, i guess it, it's revealed in that conversation in moscow that there were some old, unhappy old communist generals that went rogue and basically launched his attack so jack ryan yeah. was right but everyone thinks he was wrong and the president from russia cannot look like he does not in control of his military exactly so what do they say better to look like an aggressor than weak yeah this is short scene where there's this group of all the neo neo fascists um they're having like a, a lunch a, an evil lunch together and there's this one guy <laughs> who tries to back out of the plan and and they actually end up like murdering was him, he so. it was a french right yeah it was a i think a french either french or swiss something like that and no i think this scene was just to kind of show that these are really bad guys but it introduces some of these other characters like a russian who's going to come in later in the movie and there's this big German muscle guy who her heft, um, her yeah, heft. Her, 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 <laughs> great name. Great, yeah, it's um, like in Star Wars where the the large guy who's a pilot, uh, his name is uh, Porkins. Uh, <laughs> uh, her heft, he's the muscle. It's very Bond esque, isn't it? Like, um, yeah, we, we we have to sit through this poor French or Swiss guy explaining why he's going to leave, and there's a gigantic blonde German in the background wielding, you know, his muscles everywhere. It's like, oh, mate, come on, yeah. read the room. Yeah, and he immediately gets killed. Yeah, this the subplot of, of like right wing political movements. Uh, it's it was certainly happening in the early two thousands, and it's you know you can see a lot of it happening now in in Europe and in the United States for sure. It's uh, it's kind of scarier. It, it it added an additional level of analysis and uh, I guess relevancy for the yeah, for no, some of all fears. It, I think it is worth um, it is worth a rewatch, uh, just in the current times for for that reason. You know, in addition to this group, it, they bring in another accomplice. There's this guy in Baltimore who works at the docks. I guess he's kind of disgruntled. There's some conversations with a colleague indicates he may have washed out of the Navy. And he gets an email saying the day has come. So clearly now they have some contact here stateside who's going to help mm-hmm. do whatever it is. And he's in Baltimore. I think he signs either in that scene or later he signs for the package, the, the bomb yeah. cargo. Yeah. So that's where the bomb was going. Basically it's coming to Baltimore. Uh, but, but the CIA doesn't, doesn't know it yet. So nope. They, yeah. uh, all the CIA in the U S knows is that the Russians, they haven't moved their tanks around too much. Cause I think there's this discussion amongst the, the CIA analysts that if they were to move the tanks, they know that the only way that the United States could stop that, because the Russians have so many tanks, is with tactical nuclear weapons, and the Russians wouldn't want that to happen. And that is a sign to Jack Ryan, at least, that the Russians didn't do the attack, because they otherwise they would have started to push this a little bit more. And then we see John Clark, uh, who's now in the field. He's going around. Yeah. He tricks an old lady uh, into revealing the location of her son, who's one of the Russian scientists. Uh, and she says that he's in Ukraine uh, helping to build a, a bomb. Uh this information gets brought up the chain, and the CIA director, who's kind of considered to be a hero of the movie, right? Yeah. Uh, we all like Morgan Freeman. I'm looking at my Shawshank Redemption poster over here with his name on it. Uh, he makes a mistake. He interprets the intelligence as Russia is building a secret bomb it can use in Chechnya that doesn't have Russian fingerprints on it. Yeah, but uh, a- but actually, as we know, and, and John Clark, he, he goes to the site and he's spying on the, was it the South African guy yeah. um, that they're having, the arms dealer? saying that yeah we you know we have these scientists working on it we have we have a bomb basically and 
so it it's clear that there's some disconnect in the information there that it's yeah. really the this neo-Nazi group, but the CIA thinks it's the Russians. And I like this scene a lot. Uh, they're in the bomb making like warehouse. There's uh, tarp like plastic around um, plastic sheeting so that the uh, it's just a somewhat of a secure room. I don't know something. Uh, but there you can see them taking the bomb, the Israeli Mark 12 bomb apart. You see soccer ball pattern ball with like yeah, various like, pieces like hexagons hexagons out, yeah yeah it's like they're they're playing Catan or something uh like a 3d version of Catan, and um they they pull it apart one of the scientists takes the bomb out uh he says it's warm to the touch and then gives it to someone else and then goes for uh a, a cigarette right like there's a joke about how you shouldn't do that uh this is actually pretty interesting because that's a level of detail that i really appreciated so plutonium bombs have to be implosion devices meaning you take a sphere of plutonium, which let's say is around the size of a, a softball. Using conventional explosives, that's those different hexagon shapes. They're very specially designed to, and they, they have to s squish the plutonium to the size of like a golf ball. And then instantly during that moment, there is inject a neutron source. And that's what starts the critical, super critical reaction. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. Ah, uh, that has to, <laughs> that has to happen. The, they actually show that in the film, which is pretty cool. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe the conventional explosives have degraded in the desert, so they need to put them into a new set of conventional explosives. Well, and I think they, they also needed to fit into this. They're putting it into oh, this yeah. vending machine. There's like a cigarette yeah. vending machine in the back, and you kind of learn it later, but they're basically trying to fit this big cylinder bomb into a mm. square vending machine so maybe that's what they were doing yeah so i guess the bomb has not left that area yet that's right yeah but one of the things that's super interesting with this is you can see the the hemis they take the hemisphere cover off of the plutonium which is probably the the, the reflector or the tamper which hold everything together for a little bit longer it's perfectly safe to touch the plutonium that's Plutonium emits alpha particles as part of its spontaneous fission. Those are blocked by skin. You would probably wear gloves. Really, plutonium is most dangerous when it gets high levels of fission. That's when it gets really dirty and dangerous. But also when you inhale like dust particles that can get into your lungs and cause really bad, uh, nasty stuff because it will directly affect your organs. Uh, and I love also the vending machine joke because during this lunch we talked about earlier with the various fascists there, there's a, a joke that the Austrian industrialist makes that says... When he takes out cigarette, he goes, I've been told that these things can kill you. Remember that, because that joke gets brought up yeah, later on. Yeah. But yeah, so John Clark sees that the, these activities are happening, that we have a bomb, and now we're, we're in a dangerous situation here. <laughs> the CIA director interrupts another romantic evening. Oh my God, here we go again. Yep. He sends Jack Ryan, you know, takes away his date night and brings him to a, an airfield and says, you're going to go with John Clark to Ukraine so that you can... Uh, find out more what's going on well and john this is kind of what bomb. we talked about before that he's this desk guy but now he's actually gonna yeah. go into the field right yeah yeah, yeah. The real um habit of doing that i suppose in uh, intelligence agencies is taking take the analyst out of uh, the guy <laughs> who, who didn't remember his tie and uh, <laughs> stick him on a super critical super critical um <laughs> mission you know right behind enemy lines uh, yeah I don't go on the missions. I just write reports. So write a report about it. I'm an analyst. I'm not trained for this. I guess the, the, he sends Jack Ryan because it's an unsanctioned mission, and he thinks he can trust Jack Ryan to not spill the beans. Yeah, right. Disposable. I think Morgan Freeman's after his girlfriend. That's the only. That's, it's the only <laughs> possible explanation. Yep. He does seem really obsessed getting information. I was always asking, "How's your girlfriend doing?" Yeah. 
Has she left you yet? Oh no. Um, so yeah, I but I love this scene because like John Clark's so like casual about it. I think like Jack Ryan's like I'm, I'm I don't I can't go on this mission and Joseph's like it's not a mission it's a recce and like <laughs> they're on this boat like going to the site and and Jack Ryan's like all scared and John Clark's like do, making small talk oh oh how was the correspondence dinner and he's like all relaxed. <laughs> But no, but yeah, and let me, he, he gets uh, John Clark gives him a gun at the last moment. I don't know why yeah, he doesn't have the gun earlier, right, but exactly. And he says, "I'm what I'm not going to go in there." And he goes, "No, you're going to guard my boat." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they finally get to this site where they were building the bomb, and it it looks like they're too late because John Clark goes in. He sees the nuclear scientists have apparently been killed. One of their bodies is being devoured by like wild dogs. He finds this uh, dose meter that that shows a heavy radioactive uh, exposure. And there's something spray painted black is heavy, large, and radioactive. And I think finally the light bulb yep. goes off, and he's like, "Something big happened here, and, and we got to stop the it." The pace, the pace is starting to pick up yeah. uh, with the movie. We see the the Austrian industrialist. Uh, he is doing like a YouTube video, probably his like online manifesto. He starts to talk about how fascism will spread quickly now because of the internet and global television. That uh, during World War II it was too hard to spread fascism, but now it's going to be easier. He has this interesting line where he says, "They call Hitler crazy, but Hitler wasn't." Crazy. He was stupid. You don't fight Russia and America. You get Russia and America to fight each other and destroy each other. Uh, so we're starting to see the outlines of his motivation. Yeah, what what, right. what their what their plan is. The nuke is delivered to Baltimore. It's being disguised, as we mentioned earlier, not just a vending machine, but a cigarette vending machine. Which is a funny little joke there. I wonder if the Austrian industrialist requested that it be a cigarette vending machine, right? Yeah, maybe. This is like before. You don't see cigarette vending machines anymore. So I think this was a funny kind of like little, uh, yeah, like so time. My, time. My, my wife looked this up. It was sometime in like 2004. The federal government in the United States passed a bill that says you cannot have cigarette vending machines in places where people under 18 are likely to be. Okay. So you can put them in casinos, strip clubs, things like that, but you can't put them at, at like sporting ven- venues. Also, I've never seen, I've been to many sporting events. I've never seen a vending machine there. I have to go to the stand and wait in line hmm. and, and spend, you know, $30 for, for, a, uh, for a beer or well, something. Well, this looked like it was not where people would go to. Yeah, it, was it was like in the in bowels a, of yeah. the stadium. Or I, it's I wonder for... whether it might be a cultural thing because I went to Germany recently and there were cigarette vending machines on the street yeah. over there. <laughs> really? So maybe it's like, what can we, what can we put this bomb in that is going to be, you know, something you would see every day. It's not going mm-hmm. to attract any attention. I know we'll use a cigarette vending machine and then, yeah, send it to the States where they don't have them anymore. I love that the callback to the joke, cigarettes will kill you Yeah, because right, exactly. it's in a cigarette machine. Uh, it, when you start to see the camera pans to the cigarette vending machine, you clearly see, you know, how on a vending machine you hit like A5 to get your chips. There's clearly A4 is on there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm like, okay, now my brain is developing connections here. It's like math is formulate, math formulas are spinning around my head. Uh, A4, right? The A4 bomber that we had earlier. And on A4 is a pack of camel cigarettes. So I'm wondering, A4, camels, desert, where they found the bomb... Whew, Tim, there's something Tim, there, right? Tim, I think you're being super critical. <laughs> nah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, another fun connection, uh, someone who's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast, uh, Gregory mentioned that it's he re- it reminded him of Dr. Strangelove, because in that movie, uh, they need a quarter to call the White House to tell them the attack is 
it's not real that it's oh, yeah. what, what's going on so <laughs> they have to shoot a coca-cola vending machine to get a quarter and it's one of the, my favorite scenes in that movie because the guy who's like the there's a there's a military off like an, an mp or an army a guy who's like thinks that this british guy is probably going to be he, they don't know what's going on there and he says if you're wrong about this you're going to have to answer to the coca-cola company uh <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Uh, so, so it's yeah. unclear what this um, event is going to be. I think it's the su- it's supposed to be the Super Bowl. It looks like in the it must be the Super Bowl is being held in Baltimore. In the book, um, it's clearly the Super Bowl. Okay. They don't mention it, but Cause, it's, cause it's in Baltimore, and the two teams are Chicago yeah, and Florida. Chicago and Florida, Florida yeah. whatever that Can means. Can we also talk about what they show them singing the also national a, anthem? American football. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry for our, our UK guest here. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, can we talk about how the, when they're singing the national anthem, they're singing the second verse, or the, it's like this l- different lines. It's um, huh. yeah, it's the second stanza where it's like conquer we must for our cause it is just. I noticed that, and I've always been huh. obsessed with it because I've never heard that sung anywhere, and yet they choose to sing it in this movie, which is I thought a very interesting. I didn't pick up any of that because yeah. I was furiously reading notes about connections between refrigerators and vending machines <laughs> no look it up because the second stanza the second stanza of the um of the national anthem the u.s national anthem it gets pretty like dark and it gets like hmm. we're gonna like take over everything and like yeah we're you know we're it, look it up and i wonder if that was used on purpose for huh. some reason here that's interesting so this is the part of the movie where it, there's a drum line happening because it's like sports and stuff and uh it starts to really pick up the pace. Yeah. And I, I love this. You start to see flashes of people getting excited for the the football that's happening. Um, oh, and we got to mention important detail. Guess who's at the football game? The president of the United States and, and all of his buddies. And the CI director and all these other top guys. So, yeah, it's it, like stakes are super high. And this is where Jack Ryan realizes what's coming together. And he's feverishly trying to reach the CIA director while this game is going on. Yep. There's some cell phone interference. Uh, you know, William Cabot can't really hear him. And finally it gets through and Jack Ryan saying the bomb is in Baltimore. Yeah, it's Ryan. The bomb is in play. What not? Baltimore. They're breaking out. What are you saying? Look, I'm losing you. I'll call you back from the ball the board. Sir. Everything then picks up. They're like, William Cabot says, we got to get out of here. They quickly evacuate the president. And then you see a long shot of Baltimore, like from the air, from like the Goodyear blimp or something. And I love this. The music cuts out. It stays a little longer than you would expect. And you're constantly like on the edge, like what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, all we know is the president has been taken off. The that could mean anything. He could be ill. He could be injured. We have no. Then it cuts to the hospital where Kathy works because there's this big window. All of a sudden, flash. The window shatters, explodes into the hospital. Then we see another scene of a shockwave, dust rolling over the motorcade. 
knocking over telephone poles, flipping cars up like toys. And this is the president's, the president's motorcade as he's being evacuated. Absolutely. Then there's a helicopter scene where Jack Ryan's in a helicopter. He's the one trying to call the CA director. The helicopter, you see the ground, the shockwave move out. The helicopter like, splits in two. You see wind going out with the shockwave, and then it stops for a second, and it comes back in. Are you sorry, pause. John, helicopter crash, realistic yeah, or not? Yeah, let's, let's all take a moment for the heroic a few yeah. minutes that the helicopter remained on screen. <laughs> I loved it. Um, in your notes, you like timed it out. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the helicopter crash is is an interesting one. So I'm not I'm not sure. Like, um, obviously these blast waves they dissipate a certain to a certain extent with distance from the hypocenter, mm-hmm. but I don't know. So I don't know how far away the helicopter is. But the the blast wave travels at the speed of sound. Um, it's going to be dissipating. The mechanism by which the helicopter is ultimately brought down is the blast wave passes over it, and as it passes over, it seems to knock the um, the aircraft kind of sideways. And mm-hmm. then when you get the when you get the the blast or the whatever it is coming, the, you know, the shock wave coming back the other way, it it's almost like it's going to knock the aircraft back around, and it just takes the tail off the off the um, off the helicopter, which is you know, I've never I've never flown a helicopter through a nuclear blast. I'll, you know, I don't know anybody that has, but. Um, mm-hmm. You know the the tail. That particular part of the aircraft is very very vulnerable to any kind of shock. There have been instances where where the aircraft, where the main rotor, um, has received a um, a shock of some sort, where it's either mm-hmm. been um, overloaded or something like that, and it's actually the tail that's that's come loose from the aircraft or has been damaged. So it's very very vulnerable. So it's is it important part of the helicopter? It depends how good you are, I guess, as a <laughs> as a pilot. Um, they very luckily in this case have a, such a skilled pilot on board that it that it barely makes any difference to the the direction the helicopter's going in. For real, the the tail rotor stops the helicopter from spinning around, and you know the rotor's going one way and the fuselage mm-hmm. um, spinning the other. Once you remove that, you know you've got to do something about the fact that you've got all this torque being delivered through the transmission, um, and and the only way really to deal with that where you where you lose part of the airframe structure is to is to cut the engines and try and ride the aircraft down in in the best you know way that you can manage and of course there's always there's always alarms and and a panicked sense in the, mm-hmm. in the cockpit and then the aircraft hits the ground and it impacts like nose first into a into like a berm or a um a verge of some kind and it kind of slightly crumples the nose mm-hmm. and then the whole helicopter rotates around and tumbles down and the poor old pilot gets gets thrown out of the uh, out of the door jack ryan manages to survive but yeah i just thought wow you know that that's a pretty impressive crumple zone they've got on the front of that helicopter because they're, <laughs> not, they're not you know the, the skin on these things is about the same thickness as a coke can you know and, and they're not they're not designed hmm. that helicopters are designed to crash because if you look at a lot of action films they're really good at it but they're designed to crash like vertically with a with a with a rate of descent vertically straight down Hmm. All the seats collapse. You know, there's, there's all the shock absorption is in the vertical axis. If you just drive one into a berm, kind of asking for it, really. So it's fair to say that the the crash itself plausible if you had a really good pilot who could react almost instantly to the yeah. losing the tail rotor. Yeah. But the actual impact probably the, not the so impact realistic. would. I mean, and again, he's. I assume that the blast didn't do more damage. Um, he may have. He may. That's. He may not have had any control over the direction the helicopter was going. It might literally just have been a case of shut the engines down and kind of um, hope for the best. That that nose first impact and then all the rolling, uh, that almost certainly would have been a fire and um, a, and a much much worse outcome for for poor old Jack Ryan. But fortunately, he he's able to um, he's able to drag himself out of the wreckage mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and check on the pilot and then and then use the radio to get in touch with Langley. 
Uh, so I uh, spent some time uh, watching all the special features for the DVD, and it has a number of different scenes with the visual effects team, and they talk about what they were trying to do with all these scenes. And I, I remember one thing that the guy mentioned was what they're trying to show is that the helicopter pilot was able to, at the last second, move the helicopter so that it wouldn't crash a little bit, like a controlled landing. I don't know how they do that, but uh, it's interesting enough. Uh, they don't mention the fact that, you know, Gabe and I, you, we've been to Baltimore before. Do you know many uh, desert landscapes yeah, that, that was, are around uh, yeah, Baltimore? Yeah, that was, that was the, yeah. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, Jack Ryan seems to be going across the world. I mean, he was like uh, 14 hours away, and then he's all of a sudden in Baltimore. Yep. There's some time dilation things, so I think you just have to kind of suspend your disbelief. But in terms of something we're interested for this podcast, though, the I, and I always ask you this when we do a movie, the shockwave, sure. the blast, how, how did this uh, stack up? Realistic, not realistic? I don't think it's that bad. Okay. It's actually, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, the visual effects team in this act, the special features and stuff, really, I, I was impressed because Derek Spears, who is a uh, visual effects supervisor for the film, he talks about the three different like phases of their, they called the trilogy of the nuclear effects, which is the first, the, the hospital window, second, the motorcade shockwave, and then three, the helicopter crash. That, and the guy actually talks about Derek Spears. He says he, he wanted the scene to look uh, and he describes it. There's the heat wave that doesn't knock things over, but it causes damage. Then there's a concussive uh, wave front, and then after that, there's a vacuum because, you know, which is true. There's when you have all this heated air being pushed away, there's a vacuum that gets filled by cooler air rushing back into the center. So that is a real thing, and a lot of the damage in a nuclear explosion is in that second vacuum, and that's also where it's really bad with fire, is because that... that Just stokes the flames. Right. The the more the center of the... Like, where the aim point is, the, the ground zero, the more that's hot, it's pulling in cooler air, and it creates this vortex tunnel situation where you get firestorms. I like the fact that he tried to put all of this nuance into it. He talks about how hard it was to time the cars flipping over they couldn't just like shoot a car with an explosive device that would flip it over they actually built hydraulic arms that more like slowly lifted the car over so it looked like wind was picking it up yeah uh so they did all of this work and it's not bad it's it's described pretty well you see this mushroom cloud starting to form that clears out the cloud cover which would which will what would happen because of the heat vaporizing all of the the water vapor it's i don't know what's going on there's a red like center on the top of the mushroom cloud i don't really know what that is but maybe someone can comment on the podcast it's like the gooey red center of it yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know what's going on there it was a ground burst so i don't know where that is what what's going on up there but there's this a scene that I haven't seen before in, mo- in a nuke movie that was really effective. They showed the base of the mushroom cloud with like all this black smoke and it rushed towards the camera and enveloped the cameras, the viewer. Yeah. That was a really great scene because it was this terrifying, like almost demonic smoke. Yeah, it was like black and yeah, right. exactly. I loved, I loved that particular piece of it. Um, they mentioned that the fallout pattern is north and east, which they say in the, over the radio at some point, that means it's going out to sea, so we don't have to worry about that. But no. if you look at Baltimore, <laughs> okay. north and east is Philadelphia. Yeah, and then New York after right. that. That's... 
And if you go straight east, then you hit poor Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah, it, for, for, yeah for those who aren't uh, experts, <laughs> Tim has some Delaware yeah. in his past. So. I, I spent some time <laughs> in Wilmington, Delaware. Lovely place. But... Okay, here's one thing I, I wondered, too, about the blast is that it's not like they just set this off. This was like shown, the bomb was shown as being in the bowels of the stadium, which right. is a lot of concrete surrounding it. There's a lot of structure there. I mean, what do you think? I mean... Why would you put it there? A lot, all that structure is going to absorb a lot of that initial energy. I know the energy potential is huge, but right. isn't it better that it would be in the parking lot or something like that? Well, it depends what the goal of it is. If, if the goal is to just kill the president and to have some kind of an attack, and then there'd be unclear motives, who, how do you attribute who did it? And you just need that moment of confusion thinking that it was the Russians. Then that's effective because sure. what they're looking for it's a it's a down payment on a full scale nuclear exchange. It's not meant to destroy everything. It's the appetizer, yeah. the first course. Yeah. yeah. So in in the book, uh, they get this East German scientist. So in the book, it's back to one rogue scientist, right? And this guy knows everything. He doesn't like the fact that the Russians betrayed socialism by uh, fighting against the Russians. Uh, sorry, fighting against the Germany. Uh, he doesn't like how Western East Germany is being treated, so he designs the weapon, and he actually turns the single-stage fission implosion bomb that they get access to into a thermonuclear bomb, which is like megatonnage style. That's not really how it works. You need uranium sources. It's really complex to do a two-stage bomb, because literally what it does is a thermonuclear bomb is a hydrogen bomb. It uses the energy and x-rays from a fission primary stage and fuses together hydrogen, which releases way more energy than a fission bomb. Uh, and it has like a two-stage device. That is really hard. Tom Clancy, as much of the praise I've been giving him, uh, you know, rest in peace, don't speak will of the dead, but that is nonsense. So in that one, the goal was to just to flatten all of the city of Denver. As opposed to this one, which has just caused mayhem. Yeah, right, right, right. I do think pulling out Nuke Map. I think I saw in your in your notes too, John. You use Nuke Map, which is a yeah a tool that built by Alex Wellerstein at uh, Stevenson Institute of Technology. You can go on there. You can plug in an aim site. You can choose different yields, air burst, ground burst, all that stuff, and and you can see roughly what a effect of a bomb would be. And according to the film, they say that the blast crater was a hundred to hundred and fifty yards across. I, I put that into Nuke Map and plotted it out, and here's kind of where I see using the M&T Bank Stadium, which is where the the Baltimore Ravens uh, football team plays as the aim point, a ground burst attack, and trying to make a hundred yard diameter crater. The bomb would need to be at least thirteen kilotons, so on the high end of the efficiency of the M uh, the MK twelve, but pretty close to what they were going for, that would produce about 14,000 casualties, 46,000 46, yeah, 46, injured, uh, of fireball radius of 730 feet. So pretty big, but not that huge in terms of uh, a megaton-style bomb. But it would produce 20 PSI air blast, type of air blast uh, shockwave that can knock over concrete buildings, only out to about 1,600 feet or 0.5 kilometers. There would be an air blast of 5 PSI, which would knock over residential buildings out to 1.7 miles, and uh, an air blast of 1 PSI glass-breaking shockwave out to about 1.7 miles yeah so it's very interesting because i think you you actually plotted i didn't think to do this you plotted where john hopkins university is yeah so i looked i looked at um there are two sort of references to which hospital she's in at one point it's johns hopkins 
And then later on in the film, Ben Affleck says, oh, um, what's the deal with Memorial Hospital? Because that's Cathy's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not familiar with Baltimore except what I've seen on uh, on The Wire, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't focus heavily on the on the hospital side of things. But um, I went on to um, Nuke Map and, and basically compared these two. If you take Johns Hopkins, if you take, sorry, if you take Memorial Hospital, it's, it's way out to the north. Um, mm-hmm. If you take Johns Hopkins, um, to get a 1 PSI blast that encompasses... 50% of that hospital, you need about 20 kilotons. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a lot, lot bigger than it is in the, the film. Yeah. Um, and then there's the speed of the from between the flash and the blast as it reaches the, the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, um, they seem to have, they certainly seem to have um, done their done their research on the uh, the actual effects of the, the bomb on, you know, on the stadium yeah. and on, on the site for sure. Overall, Gabe, um, 13-ish kiloton bomb would produce that size of a crater that they say uh it probably would need to be larger for the shockwave to affect where the hospital is and where the president's motorcade is and also where jack ryan is like all of that it's a little bit off they're unclear about kind of where those are so you can always fudge the numbers of where the helicopter is sure sure the helicopter looked like it was in like farmland yeah it seemed to be far out but uh you know i think what you you don't have to get too far away from the city to start to hit some of that but you know this whole event clearly like the city is in is in ruins um but for for our purposes so the the president's motorcade has been flipped over they recover the president mm-hmm. he looks more helicopters yeah, yeah. Right. um he he looks shaken up uh but but you know functional the ci director william cabot who was in the motorcade he looks pretty bad yeah. uh yeah he's taken quite a beating jack ryan he claws his way out of the the helicopter wreckage he he also is functional i think his leg is hurt the pilot you know as as john said is dead we gotta get into you know what the hell just happened mode yeah oh and and on the other side of um of the world they wake up the russian president and let him know what happened and he makes some comment like I hope this wasn't us. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. They don't. They don't even know what you know what did it. So I love it. He says, "Prepare a statement of denial and sympathy." Right. Yeah. Those are two two of my favorite. Uh, that's like my favorite kind of statement to write. <laughs> Hallmark card should say that I didn't do it, but I'm sorry that it happened. Exactly. Um, but the uh, the president, they bring him to um, uh, what uh, it must have been Andrews Air Force Base or somewhere nearby. And they bring him on the 747 that looks like Air Force One, but is actually the uh, they call it the uh, the NAOC. Then they never actually say what, I think in the film what it is, but it's the National Airborne Operations Center, which is a mobile command center on a Boeing E4B, which is used by the National Command Authorities during a time of war. Its uh, nickname is Nightwatch, uh, which is the name of the episode of Madam Secretary. Uh, that we covered for the podcast. Uh, it's always ready at a moment's notice. There's always one of them that's fully staffed and fueled. There's three others that are in reserve at all times. It can fly continuously for at least 72 hours being refueled. Right. Uh, and this is something, I, a question for you all. The The reason why it can only go 72 hours is because at, at that point, the oil in the engine starts to break down and it needs to be replaced. Can you not do that while the plane is flying? No, no, no? you couldn't change engine okay. oil. Yeah, because I mean, you, you think about it, the oil's there's little metal parts that are building up in there. The oil's getting uh, broken down by by heat, and so I mean, any airplane, there's a lot of rotable parts. There's there's stuff that it there's only so much time the airplane can spend in the air before it needs to be brought down for maintenance. They they get checked and maintained 
for regular stuff quite often. Okay. Uh, well, this this plane, you know, the plan in real life, stepping away from the movie for a second, the plan has always been to take the president, you know, during the Cold War, for a large part of the Cold War, if the president's at the White House, you get him on a uh, Marine helicopter that takes him to Andrews. It's like a 10-minute, f- five-minute trip. Yeah. Uh, you get them there. They get on either Air Force One or this this particular plane, the NAOC. It used to be called the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, or NEACP, and uh, they pronounce that kneecap. Uh, however, in practice, it turns out this is really difficult to do. Brzezinski, a uh, former national security advisor for President Jimmy Carter in 1977, decided to do a, a drill. And uh, it was hard. Uh, they called it a complete nightmare, a, a total disaster, because they couldn't get the president to Andrews in time uh, for it to work. There were all kinds of problems. The helicopter that was supposed to get them there was almost shot down by Secret Service because they didn't know that it was incoming. They're like, what the hell is this? It's different than the normal helicopter. What's going on? Uh, there was fire- thunderstorms in the area that delayed the drill. So Russians better not launch something against us during bad weather and all kinds of problems. And they also realized that a single megaton bomb could destroy the White House and Air Andrews at the same time. Or you would just put something there. It was too vulnerable. So they moved the location of the plane secretly in Indiana. But at some point, Dan Quell, Senator Dan Quell, bragged about it in a press release because he wanted to show how much money he was bringing into the oh, state. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. don't do that, yeah. right? Uh, so yeah, so then it, it, it kind of floats between, now it's, a, it's, it's an Omaha and, um, and is it, it almost looks like it's in Omaha. I mean, if you look at Omaha, it's very close to the kind of geographical center of the continental United States. I was wondering if they keep it there just because no matter where the president is, it's, you know, maybe a two hour, maximum two and a half hour flight um, from where it needs to be or something. Yes. And also it's the center of the country, meaning it's the furthest that a bomb or missile or ah, bombers okay. can reach. So, so that's where Strategic Air Command is based out of. A lot of our uh, land-based missile silos are in that part of the country so that they have more time to get up and out of the silo before an incoming bomb hits. There's all kinds of things. Yeah, but this no, it looks like a pretty interesting plane. I mean, whereas Air Force One, I think, is kind of a flying residence, a flying White House, mm-hmm. this almost seems like more of a flying, I don't know, Pentagon, but a, a flying command center um, type thing. Yeah, I, I uh, if you guys look in our show notes here, I have a picture of a, of like a kind of cutaway of what the plane looks like. This is from, a, I believe it's Popular Mechanics. This is an article. I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes. But you can see the the different crew quarters, the conference room. There have the secure communications line. Everything looks exactly as it does in the film. Yeah. And it's I, great. I, and I saw, I, I watched a video on YouTube where somebody got to take a tour and they took some video. And I, I really looked yeah. almost exactly like it did in, in the film, which I thought was good attention to detail but it, it this looks very spartan this is not a a comfort you know mm-hmm. when you see air force one there's like plush chairs this is like command stations and you know very spartan type crew quarters it's a very different kind of airplane even though they're both essentially some modified heavily modified 747s yep yeah i was gonna say it's it's um it's a testament to how far the u.s is prepared to go and how much money they're prepared to put into right. preparation for this kind of scenario that you can keep one of these things ready in all respects all the time because the amount of technology, the amount of, like, when I was flying helicopters for the Navy, we flew a, a, an older aircraft, you know, which which this is, um, and the number of times that we had, you know, tiny things that were completely acceptable for us, you know, oh, well, that piece of kit doesn't work. It's all right, we're not going to use that today, so we'll go out and we'll do the job with, with everything else. That's not really an option when your job is you know coordinating the 
USA's nuclear triad and and hmm. you know the the complete command and control so to have every piece of kit on this jet working 100% or, or to have a jet with everything working 100% of the time is an absolutely phenomenal effort and it, and that itself must act as a as a signal to other to other nations like hey we're not kidding you know we've got these bunkers we've got these jets you know we've got the nuclear triad we are we, you know we're prepared you know kind of come at me you know this is this is the amount that we're prepared yeah. to put into something which we everything we do is working towards never having to use it come at me bro <laughs> uh, but as long as the russians don't hear about all these stories about uh yeah we tried to drill on this and it didn't work yeah that's kind of problematic isn't it no but that's a great point and john i think i read online as well that when the when the president i don't know if this is true but this might be fake news but uh when the president flies in air force one they actually have one of these following him on international trips so Hmm. not only the cost to maintain and keep it on a high state of airworthiness but then to actually be operating it um that's just an empty plane that's following the president around it's just wild Yep. Uh, so back in movie world, uh, the White House really thinks that it was the Russians. The military is convincing them, like, look, you need to strike back somehow. Uh, Jack Ryan's mission is to convince the president and his CAA colleagues that it wasn't the Russians. It should be a pretty easy job, given the information he has. He can't reach Cabot. Um, and no and, one else has taken his calls. And, and you know, I think the interesting thing, too, is uh, American leadership, the president and everything, they're really primed to think that this was a Russian attack. And I, I, I love all this part of the movie because at the beginning when they have the drill at Mount Weather, everything is so, like, we know exactly what's happening. It's scripted. Boom, boom, boom. Let's do this. And here they're like... They're getting on the plane, and he's asking the Secretary of State, what do you know? He said, I don't know anything, and they're they're just arguing with each other. They're, it's it's very irrational. It's very the confused. The president's angry. Yeah, the president's angry. People are injured. People are tired. Um, I love, too, that the plane, I, there's constantly turbulence on the plane, so everything's shaking around. The camera's moving. It's just very chaotic, and I think it was a really great, it just sets it up great to show that difference of drill yep. versus real life. And then... Uh... To contrast that, we we cut to a scene where the the Austrian industrialist Nazi guy is uh, calmly eating some dinner, drinking some wine, watching a TV report about casualties and everything. And he uh, calls up his is a Russian friend that we see from earlier in the movie, and he says, uh, "Yeah, time to start more trouble." That Russian turns out is like a commander at a bomber wing, and or a, maybe a, a an airfield. I don't think it's bombers, probably like jet fighters and stuff. Yeah, some sort of airborne strike type thing. And uh, he runs into the room and says, the U.S. has just launched an ICBM that's taken out Moscow. We need to strike back. And the way to do that is to, like, attack an aircraft carrier. Not really proportional, but maybe that's all that they can do. Uh, So, yeah, Yeah. they go and do that. They go and uh, try to sink an, an American aircraft carrier. And once this attack happens, what... I mean, the White House, uh, the mobile White House basically is like, yeah, we're we're in a shooting war now with 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 Russia Board the plane. POTUS, the president of the United States, tries to send a message to the Russian president to figure out like what's happening. They're using this weird like AOL instant messenger yeah. type thing. <laughs> they which, type it out. Yeah. It's, is this I mean, what is this a real thing? Or? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, this is one of my other favorite parts of this film. OK. Um, they use what's called the, the Moscow, Washington hotline also known as the Moscow Link, 
or shorter Molink, like Mohawk, but Molink. This is the red phone, but it's not the kind of one you see in most movies and TV where it's a literal red phone and you're on the line, kind of like Failsafe, the movie Failsafe that we covered on the podcast before, where you're on a literal phone with the president. It's kind of like Dr. Strangelove type thing uh, where you're trying to chat. Uh, It was actually inspired by Dr. Strangelove and those communication things. Famous deterrence theorist Thomas Schelling encouraged the United States to create some kind of communication line similar to Dr. Strangelove. But in real life, it's not a phone. It originally started as a teletype type system where it would, an English speaker, the president would say something into this, to the system and a person on, on the US line would, would type it out. It would get sent in English to the Russians and then someone on the Russian side would translate it and read it out to the president. Huh. So it's translated that way. So it's pretty quick communication, but it's not uh, written in Russian. It's not a phone communication. The reason is, communicating verbally you get things like emotional pieces to it uh near instantaneous translation is hard when you do simultaneous interpretation you can interpret tone but you can it's a little more clear and and they realized during the cuban missile crisis there was no good way of like communicating the official channel would take several hours to get a message back and forth so this system has been around since june 20th of 1963 Uh, It was called the Memorandum of Understanding Regarding the Establishment of a Direct Communication Line. It it worked pretty well. According to an article in 1998 in New York Times, this is important to the film. If the message were to suggest an imminent disaster, such as an accidental nuclear strike, the Moling team would call the situation room duty officer and the gist of the message, the main elements for him would be translated and relayed to the president. Uh, This is quickly followed up by a more meticulously translated message. And when the president is away from the White House, the president can be quickly patched into the Molink through special equipment that accompanies him at all times. One little kind of fun fact here is you have to test this thing to make sure it's working in between our diplomatic crises so that Americans would often send out messages that were like excerpts from Mark Twain, Shakespeare, first aid manuals and things like that. The USSR would send quotes from Anton Chekhov. What, given Gabe's love of Star Trek, I thought yeah, I'd bring that up. There you go. Um, But yeah, so that's how they would test it and things like that. And the Russians said, please stop (laughs) sending us regular messages because they don't because they want it to be used for like when it's a problem. Right. They still have to test it. Right. Uh, Now it moved from this teletype system to a fax machine during the Reagan administration. And now it's actually more like an encrypted near instantaneous email system. Okay, Uh, so more similar to what we saw in the the film where they're sending electronic messages back and forth. Absolutely. Uh, So in the movie, the Russian send a the Russian president sends his thoughts and prayers uh, to the US denies any sort of involvement. Uh, The US promises to defend itself against further attack. So the Russian president raises the alert level. They're concerned about the US using this as the guise of like a first strike like a justification so we're really seeing this like back and forth the rush the u.s potus accuses them of not being in control of his own military there's lots of like back and forth about you were the ones who used the atomic bombs against japan right and you see a breakdown because these two people don't know each other there's no trust there uh there's like fighting in the war room uh between the different people about like the secretary of the state and secretary of defense the secretary of defense has heart attack yeah at some point yeah uh, which is crazy uh, but finally, the president agrees to uh, initiate snap count, S-N-A-P-C-O-U-N-T, which I'm not sure uh, what that really is. I couldn't find any reference to that term being used elsewhere, but it's kind of like a heightened version of DEFCON 1, high alert status. And the important thing is stops communication between 
the president and the rest of the world. So it's really? like to stop uh, messages from being sent in that are going to confuse things. Do you think they say snap count? Because, you know, it's the nuclear football. Snap snap count is a football term. It's the count before you, yeah. you know, the quarterback receives the... Tom Clancy may have written that as like a, I don't know what yeah. this is, but I'm going to just inject this. The reason why it's called the nuclear football is because back in the day, the nuclear attack plan was nicknamed uh, dropkick. And what do you need to dropkick? But a football. Yeah. Was this um, so? This uh, I kind of wasn't really clear to me 100 percent what what um, at what point the decision actually was made that right we're going to launch the missiles. You're right. And it, it seemed to be that that kind of started with snap count. Like as soon as you say right, initiate snap count. Right, that's it. We're launching. There didn't seem to be a sensible kind of progression that I could follow. Sure between going to to defcon one or or whatever uh, and then going right okay it's all it's all gone you know wrong we got we got to launch the yeah. missiles because they go through yeah they go they go through this conventional retaliation first yeah where they they bomb a russian airfield which they make it sound like oh we'll use f16s it'll be fine um, yeah right um <laughs> so they've gone through that but then they they kind of just without very much more discussion it's like well, yeah, the Russians might be up to something. We we better start the nukes. Yeah, it just didn't seem to be very. There was no real point at which, right? This is this this is the big one. This is my. I mean, this is one of my uh, gripes a little bit. I mean, fundamentally, what they're struggling with here is this prisoner's dilemma type game, right? Where yeah. neither side knows what the other one's doing. Clearly, the worst outcome is if we both have war, but each side thinks that the other side is going to strike first. You know, in a Prisoner's Dilemma game, ideally, neither side strikes, but if you think the other guy's going to strike, then you strike too, and then you end up in this this horrendous situation where Mm -hmm. there's absolute war, and you're right, it was never, like, laid out, it wasn't clearly developed how we made that jump from conventional war to nuclear maybe it's the fact that the nuclear bomb actually did go off but i would have liked to see more explanation about how this prisoner's dilemma game would unfold in a situation like that yeah especially for the lay the lay viewer it seemed to me like they were trying or the director or the screenwriter or whoever was trying to get a lot of um nuclear warfare doctrine into this scene a lot mm-hmm. of stuff about you know counterforce about if we take if we take their um, ICBMs out in their silos. At one point, he says, "Oh yeah, if we take their ICBMs out in, the, in their silos, uh, I think he'll call it a night." You know, he'll push back from the table. He's still got three hundred nukes that he can use to destroy all of our cities, um, and that kind of goes without any alternative. There's no you know, and it it just felt to me like there was the the screenwriter, or the director, whoever was like, "Right, we've got all this really good information." Um, it's really important stuff for people to understand about you know how mm-hmm. these decisions have been made but these decisions have been made over years and years and years of thinking about it it's not like 20 seconds in an airliner um they just for my, for my money they they tried to force too much in there and and the the real decision making and the idea that the president was kind of losing his marbles a little bit was wasn't they didn't really do a, as good a job as they could have of making that point and, and focusing on the psychology rather than on the the um the nuclear tactics i i would say that probably some of the movie is meaning to say that it is chaotic people are like just trying to remember their their planning but everything is kind of falling apart because any at any moment they think someone else is going to launch first yeah you're right they mentioned non-nuclear counterforce targeting counterforce is where you a, a, a strike against the other side's military 
versus counter value, which is you go after things that they value non-military, which could be cities, it could be resort homes, it could be industrial sites. The hard part about that is, is that you have to, there's certain things you do during a counter force strike con- conventional one, non-nuclear, that signals to the other side that you may be preparing for a first strike nuclear attack. By taking out some military installations, it could be softening the enemy for a full-scale attack. And then when the Russians put their weapons on high alert so that they can launch them in case of a first strike, may signal to the other side that they are getting ready for a nuclear attack. It's super hard to balance defense versus offense and how you signal things to the other side for sure. And the very idea that we'll get into a limited nuclear war where we strike quickly against all of the Russian silos, all of the Russian bombers, we'll cut our losses as much as we possibly can, and Russia after this will just be like, yeah, no problem. We'll just uh, we'll keep our remaining mobile missiles and that'll be our deterrent and they'll back down is i think a fantasy but it is a real part of real war planning escalation control limited nuclear war arguments you hear a lot in the united states about why we need more lower yield nuclear weapon options is to fight that kind of conflict so it doesn't have to go from conventional skirmishes to immediately a full-scale nuclear world ending war that's an argument that's real and the movie certainly shows and plays that out it's hard because while at the same time jack ryan is trying to convince everyone that it's not the russians so he needs to know he yells at this like radiation detection team which i don't in the movie they don't ever say who they, these people are it's assumed to be a nest i think they said nest at some Did they point. say nest yeah, yeah in the book it's clear that it's nest uh right. he yells i need to know where the, this bomb came from i send in a robot drone who like collects samples And I'll just talk really quickly here because I know we're getting long uh, on nuclear forensics, which is a a type of real world science that you try to determine where radioactive materials, fissile material comes from. Uh, In the movie, they determine uh, that it the nuclear material that was detonated came from the United States. It came from Savannah River uh, site, which is a a Department of Energy plutonium production facility that helped uh, during the the Manhattan Project, and it makes a lot of plutonium for the United States. They say not only did it come from Savannah River, they know it was built in 1968 and from a particular reactor, a K-reactor in Savannah River. There's this funny line about the, the guys who are doing the nest analysis are like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they always had that uh, gadolinium problem. Hanford did it a different way, but Savannah always produced so much promethium, which is funny. Uh, too much promethium, I'm calling it as my next band name. <laughs> that kind of science is real. Uh, it's a huge priority for the United States. Uh, the, the government, U.S. government and Congress has put a lot of money into nuclear forensics. I heard the best description of how hard that is to do, though, came from a conference I was at where someone in the army who was doing nuclear forensics described it as if you have a cake and you explode the cake and you are now bringing someone in to say, all right, who built this cake? And it was like, (laughs) well, you have all the individual ingredients that you can maybe trace back. But when you explode something, it changes the the molecules. Uh, It heats up. It changes into something else. It's scattered around. That cake is radioactive. It's kind of hard to collect all that information. To underscore that, an, an article that I read in preparation for this for this uh, podcast, written by Phil Baxter, uh, who's a, a real nice guy, real smart uh, analyst, he used to be with the National Defense University. He wrote an article uh, called "The False Hope of Nuclear Forensics" that I recommend. And his argument there is, you know, forensics can help you determine who didn't attack you by by like eliminating certain sources and things like that. 
but it's really hard to make quick decisions based on that information because nuclear forensics takes a really long time. Uh, he said that it probably takes around 21 to 90 days optimistically to get information back to use for, as part of intelligence. And by that time, you're already needing to make a decision on how to respond. And nuclear forensics requires you to have access to the original isotopes to understand what signatures are being there. If the U.S. doesn't have access to the Russian fissile material, it can't match it up. Fortunately for this, the U.S. had those sources, so it could it could match it up. Um, but yeah, so more likely in those situations, you're likely to get false positives as well because it's not like a single blended scotch. Uh, fissile material is often mixed from different places and different sources. Single malt scotch. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it's it's really hard, but the point is Jack Ryan knows that it's domestic source of, of, of plutonium. Uh, he doesn't know yet the connection between the U.S. and Israel, uh, but he knows that he needs to talk, contact Cabot. He finds Cabot. He's dying in a hospital, a pop-up hospital somewhere. And the last thing he says before he dies is contact Spinnaker. He pulls up. This is the this back channel yeah. guy. Yeah. He, he gets his phone. He calls him. He like, or maybe texts him a little bit. And we find out that... Uh, Spinnaker says the U.S. gave the plutonium to Israel. Now we know. But Jack Ryan can't get that information to the president because of everything's kind of shut off. Jack Ryan does find out, though, that Kathy is still alive, but he can't, you know, he's busy. Yeah. Uh, so right. he can't do anything. So he tries to get this over to uh, to the to the president. John Clark also finds out that the plutonium was found in the desert. He does that by visiting uh, someone that was dying uh, of radiation poisoning because he's reading the internet and it was posted on the internet about someone dying. I'll just note again here that touching plutonium does not give you radiation sicknesses because you can hold it in your hand. It won't make you sick, but whatever. It's not, not, not as important. But if you find plutonium on the ground, call somebody, but it's fine to pick it up. So, um, so while, you know, while um, Jack Ryan and... and... John Clark are all running around. So the situation does escalate in terms of the nuclear conflict, right? We had talked right. about before there's a there's a conventional warfare attack on a Russian airbase, but then there's this kind of decision that the U.S. is going to up the ante a little bit, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of scary. The, the Russians see a lot of, they say if the B-2s, the B-2 Spirit, the stealth bomber, if those are in the air, that's the final signal that something's happening. And of course, that happens. So the Russian president... There, that should get the uh, their name for the nuclear football uh, gets activated, and it looks like things are going to go bad. Jack Ryan knows that he has to talk to the president. The Secretary of Defense like receives the call and says, yeah. "I don't, I don't trust you." And this is before he has his heart attack, of course. So Jack Ryan like goes to the National Military Command Center at the Pentagon and convinces the wa the desk watch officer to let him use that secure line so that Jack Ryan can send a message to the Russian president. Yeah, and right. he says, "Look, I know who, you know me." We're friends. I know about your dating habits. Uh, you can trust me. We know that it was well, the, the, the material came from Israel. That came from the United States. Just trust us. Trust me so much. Uh, eventually, the National Military Command Center, who does manage the Molink in real life, they cut him off. But the Russian president says, "I believe you. I'm going to pull back my forces." Then everything starts to calm down. At that's kind of how things pretty quickly yeah. de-escalate. But it's this personal connection between the Russian president and Jack Ryan that saves the day. Start the sequence. We've got activity on the hotline. They've had their chance. No, no, somebody's talking to the Kremlin. As you can imagine, there has been much confusion here and fear. 
but we know the weapon was not Russian. Who are we talking to? Ryan, I met you in Moscow with Bill Cabot. Died today in Baltimore. Cut him off! The system is set up so you can't cut it off. That's the whole idea. Then get somebody down there to stop him. Back down. Can we also talk about just, and this was a little bit before, when the president does actually order the attack, just yeah. the way that goes down, because it's very different than in the drill in the beginning where he calmly says, this is the number, and I order the I order the strike. And... He can't remember what the right code was on the biscuit. His voice cracks. Yeah, he's kind of like sheepishly saying, like, yeah, do it. And they, they, they actually ask him, can you please confirm, I, I didn't hear you, do you want to do this? Yeah, I, th- I thought James Cromwell did a really good job of, oh, of yeah. portraying a guy at the point of what must be absolute duress, like just kind of at the same time as having a nervous breakdown is having to start World War Three. You know, it's it's really it's quite a, it's quite a scene actually. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I thought it was well done. I guess that just you know one thing, another nit of mine at the end. So, you know, Jack Ryan does save the day by convincing the Russian president to stand down Mm -hmm. because they have this connection. What's unclear for me, so what happens then is the U.S. president reciprocates by saying let's call off our strike and he had already given the order he had like already that one gi- minute window in the court the movie is it's they're in that window exactly so they're because they're very close what i don't understand though is how is the prisoner's dilemma game broken by jack because clearly jack ryan has convinced the russians but the the president doesn't necessarily know that the the russians send a message saying we're going to stand down right but the, that could be a lie so yeah. why would the president say I, I don't understand why having Jack Ryan, somebody that the president is not aware of this connection between mm-hmm. Jack Ryan and the Russian president, so he has no ability to judge whether that rapport would result in an actual stand down by the Russians. How does that message change the the U.S. thinking on it? In my mind, to, to me, that's a very... Uh, that that was really the worst part of the movie for me because that little bit why would the president decide to change his mind based on just that and why would the russians not think that this was a trick exactly. like this would be the perfect thing i'm sure they've war gamed this out that a, a message from molink would be like oh this is an error we we aren't launching anything while like the buttons being pushed over and over and over again <laughs> well i think one of the generals does say that that this is you know this is this is a trap and i think the the spinnaker guy he He's whispering in the president's ear saying, why don't we listen a little bit more? And I think it is that connection that gets the Russian president comfortable. But I don't know what gets the U.S. president comfortable. That, sure. to, to me, there was no there was no information to get the U.S. president confident that the Russians actually were going to stand down. So if I were to do the math on this Sum of All Fears movie, I would say that uh, it probably would be the president would say, all right, let's take it down to DEFCON 3. We have submarines and bombers in the air that can survive a first strike, let's wait it out to see. Because the president clearly does not want to do this. So he's looking for an excuse right. to pull back. Right. And especially this information that, oh, it came from Israel. It's like kind of interesting to him. He wants, to, uh, I love the the little note that James Cromwell says at the end. He's like, tell Jack Ryan, I want my phone back. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right he after. seems to recover pretty quickly from his, uh, his, his breakdown, doesn't he? He's like sense of humor straight away <laughs> so uh jack and kathy finally meet up and they have they, they, they kiss and the u.s and russians uh sign a, a new arms control treaty and i love this scene because there's like opera music playing while they're formally signing this arms control agreement to agree to 
get rid of nuclear weapons or something, right? It reminds me, I don't know, I'm sure this is either intentional or it's close. It reminds me of the scene at the end of The Godfather during the baptism scene, where there's a lot of like opera religious music playing. And while the the two people are agreeing to, to, to sign a treaty and all this stuff, all of the enemies and villains of the film are being murdered by rogue agents. So the Austrian industrialist gets blown up in a car bomb by the Russians. The arms dealer from earlier in the movie gets his throat cut uh, by John Clark. The the, the military uh, commander in Russia gets shot by, by KGB agents. All while it's similar to that Godfather scene where he's saying things like, do you denounce Satan and all of his works? <laughs> this version to me is, do you denounce the Satan missile and all of its warheads? Uh, which is the nickname for the SS-18 IC. These are the things I think about when I when I think about this movie. <laughs> you were uh, looking forward to using that one all week, I bet. All weeks, yeah. It did strike me that it, it might be a little bit hasty to just go around the world knocking these guys over. You know, like, yeah. surely you would want to exploit some of that intelligence material. <laughs> but anyway, so the, there's a big speech by the U.S. president uh, and the Russians who agree to, to root out and eliminate the WMD uh, most... And it says, like, the most dangerous weapons were fired, not in anger, but in fear. Yeah. The sum of all of them, probably. Well, it's kind of cool because they're, they're doing the, the president is making this speech. Uh, he's on the, the south lawn of the White House and Jack Ryan is with, uh, with Kathy. Um, they're having a picnic watching the speech on the, on the ellipse just further south of there. And uh, the Spinnaker guy actually yeah. comes up to Jack Ryan. And, and it turns out it was the, the yeah. old KGB guy who knows where all the bodies were buried so he he uses this final opportunity in the film to ruin um a romantic uh time um consistent with the theme and uh the movie ends with the spinnaker guy saying congratulations on he gives uh kathy a gift as a little uh, token for your engagement and jack ryan's like how do you know that i just proposed to her this morning and a modest gift for your engagement Just asked me this morning. We uh, we haven't told anybody about. It. How did you? How could you possibly know? He kind of walks away. His like, little uh, his blue eyes. He little smile like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's such a different <laughs> movie than it would be today because that joke is, haha, I'm spying on a, an American uh, CIA operative. We know everything about you. It's kind of funny, right? Not um, anymore. <laughs> but I uh. There's there's little things you can nitpick there about how quickly an arms agreement like this would would come about, especially how insecure the Russian president is at home. Uh, the Russians would probably be pretty upset about that. The U.S. president uh, would probably get some flack uh, at home for for signing this kind of a treaty. All kinds of little things like that. Uh, but it's fine. I also think the most probably unrealistic part about this whole story is how quickly they get engaged when the movie starts. Jack Ryan has not said I love you yet, right? If, if anyone should know, it's you that nuclear weapons are the ultimate aphrodisiac. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, a uh, nuclear bomb in Baltimore. That's like that's crazy. Well, I did I did propose to my wife on the beach. Oh dear. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a famous nuke movie that we're going to cover called On the Beach. Ooh. I was giddy with that one. Sorry, I'm going to stop smiling. Uh, all right, so that's that's the end of the movie. Uh, let's get into, we've already gone, according to my count here, about two and a half hours. Let's do our parking lot movie discussion. And uh, this reminds me, again, since this is the first nuke movie I saw in the theater, I was on a debate trip. 
I was already pretty nerdy. This was the entire year in high school. We were talking about weapons of mass destruction and Russia and all of this stuff. And at the last tournament of the year at Nationals, we went to the theater together to watch this movie. So it was really fun. So I was, you know, proto-Tim, uh, proto-podcast, criticizing the film, talking about what parts we really liked in the parking lot on the way back to the car. So really, this is the kind of experience where we should chat about non-nuke things, but other pieces too. And the, uh, But let's talk about not the heroes. Let's talk about the villains. Do you think that this plot that the, in the movie makes sense of... Uh, starting a war between the U.S. and the Russians, and that I guess the idea is that socialism in Europe can rise back up from it, from that conflict. John, I know you had some thoughts on this. I want to hear what Gabe says, too. The whole neo-fascist thing is... Um, it's interesting, isn't it, in the in the kind of the peace dividend that we were living in, in, in when the film was, was written and when it was filmed... It makes sense because I remember, you know, I was do I was reading a fair bit in current affairs because it was around the time that I was I was applying to to join the military and and there was mm-hmm. a lot going on back then about you know what are we going to do about the, the everyone or a lot of a lot of uh, commentators were saying you know this is a real problem this is potentially a um, a problem for the for the future and then um, after nine eleven that all went away and and you know the the um, the the attention shifted elsewhere and now here we are again with neo-fascism uh you know and and um you know the alt-right and and all of that sort of um that stuff it's a bit more topical so i think i think the idea of of nationalism being a threat to the the stability of uh the globalized world that we that we live in post cold war i think that's that's completely credible i just not sure what the overall strategy was for these guys like yeah what we'll do we're we're europe we want more power we're sat in between the two nuclear superpowers there's a lot of american infrastructure and strategic targets in our sovereign territory yes that's the part i think the most uh the the most sensible thing we can do is start a full-scale nuclear exchange between these two and then we will be king of the rubble uh you know it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow that a yeah, war, a strategic like war between the, the two the sides. Ru- the gonna... Russians would target Germany yeah. heavily because that's where a lot of our tornado fighter jets that have that are nuclear capable are based. It's in Germany. Yeah. Like Germany, Austria, Europe. Uh, I mean, the movie Threads is about a shooting war that starts between the United States and this in the Soviet Union that gets Russia targets. I don't know, Sheffield in the middle of England. Like, it yeah. will happen. Yeah. Europe will be a target for all of these things. The- it's like, if you want to take over your neighborhood, let me burn down all the houses <laughs> around me. Aren't you worried about your house catching on fire? <laughs> yeah. There also won't be global television and internet in a world where threads happens everywhere. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. But I guess that speaks to uh, the uh, the inconsistency and the, and the lack of logic on, on that right. side of the political debate. The global television network will be like it is at the end of Threads, where there's a bunch of people that no longer know how to speak English, that are dying of radiation poisoning, that are watching videos of cat skeletons on VHS tapes, and it's the only thing they have access to, and they're wondering, what is a cat? Like, that's the global internet and TV that will exist after a full-scale nuclear attack. But in the book... It's there's a series of these moments of the villains plans, right? Because there's the East German scientist who wants to start a war so that Germany can rise back up. Then you have the Arab front uh, nationalists who are trying to stop the peace process. So Jack Ryan first has to stop 
a, a U.S.-Russian war under the guise of this attack. And he convinces the, the American president that it's not the Russians, it's someone else. So that stops. And then the president is told by the terrorist that, oh, we work for Iran. The Iranian, the, the Ayatollah, gave us our orders. So then the president's like, screw uh, Iran, we're going to launch an attack uh, against Iran. So that's where this moment, because the CIA director is dead and the defense secretary is also dead, Ryan's the next in the line of uh, the two-man rule. And Ryan has this line where he he refuses to authenticate the, the second piece to it. He says, that is correct, Jack said, his voice growing stronger. General, it is my duty to inform you that in my opinion, the president is not, I repeat, not in command of his faculties. I urge you to consider that if another launch order is attempted. So it's not how it works. There's no veto authority. If he says he's not going to authenticate, it goes to the next person, to the next person, to the president appoints this his bodyguard friend to be the, like he appoints a secret service agent and says, you're now the secretary of defense. Give me this launch order. Like that's how it would work. It's a series of these things over and over again, like double climax that the movie I'm glad got rid of. All right. Last thing here. Uh, what do you think is a better, like terrifying plot device? Uh, movies where there is an intentional use of nuclear exchange, an accident that leads to this kind of an exchange or pure movies about like nuclear terrorism, because this was something that uh, I don't know if it's real controversy or it could have just been literal fake controversy by like Fox News, because when this movie came out, they were like, why is Hollywood releasing a movie about nuclear terrorism so close to 9-11? They should have not not done this. And Ben Affleck was asked about this and he said, look, if you feel deeply affected or traumatized that you don't want to see anything that has to do with terrorism uh, or the dangers we face in the world, I mean, you'd have to not watch television. But that I certainly understand that. But by the same token, I'm, I'm very proud of the movie. So this was a question here. What do you think is like the most effective type of film that deals with nuclear weapons? And do you think it? Do you think this movie should have been released after 9-11, given the content that's involved? My answer is yes. I don't think it matters. But I don't know what you guys' thoughts on. That's, I guess that's two questions. Well, I guess the, the so to the first question, what's more terrifying? I think the intentional nuclear war. Because... With the terrorist attack, it's at least more limited. And I think this movie kind of does that. The, the real, we have a nuclear bomb go off like halfway through the movie, but the real threat is the fact that these two countries will then get dragged into an intentional war. So I think that really, that is the, the main sum of all fears. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with it coming out so soon after 9-11. I mean, it's a real thing. It's not, it didn't like seem to capitalize off of, the the uh, attacks on the twin towers in the pentagon it wasn't like sensational i think it was a just very well done film highlighting a real issue yeah john um i think uh, the accidental versus intentional nuclear war thing i think they, they can both be equally as terrifying um it depends on not realistically but how logically that progression from a from a, an event is followed through to um you know ultimately a nuclear attack uh, clearly there's you know different scales of of nuclear attack but um yeah if you if there's a if there's a reasonable if you can see reasonable people making reasonable decisions and mm -hmm. all you're doing is getting closer and closer and closer to a, a, a devastating war like that that's that's pretty terrifying for me whether it's accidental or whether it's intentional um as to whether it should have been released post 9 11 yeah i mean 
I can understand why people would would think that, particularly those those that are close to um, that that were closely connected with the with the attack itself. Mm-hmm. But if you've got something important to say and it's on an important topic, it's just as important whether it follows a um, a big tragic event like that or 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 whether it takes place. Um, arguably, you you could say that it's more important to have these discussions with with big tragedies like that fresh in people's minds because it underlines um, the value of the value of human life. Um, that said, yeah. if you're going to make a film where you know you're capitalising on that and, and capitalising on people's fears just for the just just for a, um, a plot device, I think that's 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 a bit um, insensitive. But it's always going to be insensitive, regardless of, of when you release the film. Yeah, I, I think the part of the point of this is that even in a time of post 9/11 terrorism, uh, real I guess older worries of nuclear danger uh, still exist, and the director makes this point that he loves Tom Clancy stories because they're grounded in what's the current threat, what's the current problems. And the director says, uh, quote, this is a film that shows the danger of how fear can drive our reactions and leads us in the wrong conclusions and responses, which is something I, I think is incredibly important here. Uh, but even just in terms of like the realistic plot side, uh, there was this uh, discussion of like a panel on Fox News uh, where they were bringing people. There was like a movie critic some other random person and one of my favorite people in the nuclear community, his name is Joe Cerenzioni. Uh, at the time, he was with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and now he's the president of the Plowshares Fund. And he was asked about if this movie was realistic. And he has a really great line here where he says, of course, the the movie takes liberties with things like whether or not the CIA agent would actually go in the field or not. But the central premise, could a country lose a nuclear weapon? In the movie's case, it's Israel. But yes, we've lost nuclear weapons. Could you find the weapon? Yes, people have acquired these or may have acquired these weapons in the past. Could you get a Russian scientist to repair the weapon? Yes, Russian scientists are available. And finally, could you smuggle it into the United States? Unfortunately, yes. So the central premise that a terrorist could find, repair, and smuggle in a device and blow up a part of Baltimore is unfortunately all too real. And I think that's why this movie is as powerful as it is to me is because all of those individual steps make sense. Now, separate from whether or not the logic of the Austrian industrialist motivation, I kind of wish their motivation was just to wreak havoc as opposed to bring a, create a a new world order in a post-nuclear age, but that's fine. That doesn't make much sense, but all right. So we've, we've talked about this a lot. Let's, let's rate it because we have to, you know, put our, our mark in the world. Uh, Normally we have a consistent one to five rating system across all of our different topics but I like to be super critical about the ratings since I'm going to be super critical about the plot. I run the numbers here. What I think our rating system should be is one out of five quarters for the nuclear vending machine. Uh, one quarter a coin will get you barely a pack of iridium gum, but uh, five quarters will get you some top shelf good stuff. Uh, Gabe, what would you rate this film out of one to five? I'd give it a four. Um, I remember liking this when I last saw it probably like 10 years ago um i still liked it i thought generally the plot moved well there was good action um it it came apart where i ding it though is the ending for me why the president backs away is not does not make sense and there's some places for a hyper accurate thing there's just some stuff that you know in terms of time dilation where people travel across oceans in short amount of time it keeps going between day and night in baltimore it seems stuff like that that just got to me but no overall i think a solid film and well worth a watch given the uh current state of all this uh you know 
nationalist movements kind of going on around the world. What about you, John? Um, I think I'd give it a four as well. Um, and uh, I, for many of the same reasons, when I first uh, watched the film back in 2002, I didn't really know an awful lot about nuclear topics. Um, I don't know an awful lot about now, but I know certainly know more than I did then. Um, and having had the some of the experiences that I've had since then, it's also underpinned the kind of this idea that, yeah, human beings are really fallible and, and you could have all of these things are all kind of worst case scenarios. But if mm-hmm. you keep if you keep uh, rolling the dice enough times, it's possible to get them all to line up and to, and to have a big, um, a, a, you know, a huge situation like this uh things that that kept it off the five spot for me were the fact that um the, the main characters have to be involved in everything uh, like you've got in the tail yeah. end of the film you, you've got ben affleck running around you know getting in everybody's business uh, uh, you know around a firestorm i understand why they've done it you know it's it's the bottom line it's an action film but it, it just kind of um took the shine off a little bit for me um and again some of the inconsistencies were just a little bit too much to to for, for it to get full marks for me Yep. Uh, I'm pretty close to you guys. I give it a 4.25. I give it an extra quarter there uh, because I, it, to me, as someone who's watched so many of these nuclear films, where it is accurate and the the effort and detail that it puts into it, I, I want to give it a little bit more like credit for that. It's entertaining. It's a very entertaining movie. It runs pretty quickly. Um, but once Jack Ryan gets to Baltimore, as John mentioned, and it's starting to run around in the fire, and it's just too many convenient moments. Too many things have to line up for this to go well. I like movies where things, uh, there's a lot of uh, crazy situations that make things go bad, but the thing that solves it is more clear and focused. This is the reverse of that. There's a lot of things that line up to make it go bad, and also a lot of coincidences that make it work near the end. So it, it almost nailed a perfect nuke movie. It's close, but it just does not uh, take it across the finish line. Uh, there's a few things that subtract from the sum of all fears. Uh, all right, so let's get into our final element here where we, we recommend stuff, because if you enjoyed this, uh, you might like some other stuff. Uh, I recommend three things. Uh, first, Peter Fever's book from 1992 called Guardian, The Guardians, Civilian Control of Nuclear Weapons in the United States. It's a great book about how the president orders an attack uh, using nuclear forces, uh, the role of the military in that process, and how it can break down. It's a great uh, summary of all of that stuff. Uh, I recommend... Chapter 13 of the Nuclear War Survival Skills Handbook uh, that was made in 1987 by Oak Ridge National Labs. The chapter is called Surviving Without Doctors. I want to give Bridget Moynihan a shout out for this movie. She's a doctor. They have all these pop-up hospitals in the midst of a nuclear attack. But I think the the theory behind most uh, plans for nuclear war, and especially in in a place that's right next to where the detonation took place, you're going to have to survive without doctors because... There will not be access to hospital facilities and the resources needed for that for a long time. Uh, So check that out so you're prepared. And finally, I recommend a movie called The Fourth Protocol from 1987. Uh, It stars, it's uh, Cold War spies and it involves a false flag nuclear attack. And kind of the fun twist here is the villain is a KGB agent played by Pierce Bronson. Brosnan. Brosnan. I never can pronounce that, (laughs) which makes all of our uh, James Bond episodes difficult. Uh, and Michael Caine is a British spy, and they you see him, Mike, you see Pierce uh, build a bomb uh, on his own, and he puts everything together, and it's a it's a really cool film that involves similar plot. In a, I like that movie. We're gonna cover it at some point in the podcast, but we're gonna have to have nicknames for for Pierce, Bronze, San, 
Bronson? Bronson? Or, or, Bronzer? Bro- or Brosnan, if yeah, you whatever. Uh, John, what do you got? Do you have some stuff to recommend to listeners? Yeah, I would recommend um, a book called The Secret State by Peter Hennessy. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, a history of Britain's, uh, kind of all of the sensitive state mechanisms, um, and it has a heavy focus on um, how and why we um, ended up with a nuclear arsenal ourselves, um, and a, a little bit about how that's managed. It is it's the only place other than um, um, another uh, a video documentary also by Peter Hennessy called the human um, the human button it other than that it's the only place I'm aware of where you find a very detailed and very accurate description of the UK's nuclear firing tra- chain um, so it's 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 really you know interesting stuff if you're interested in that sort of thing um, the second thing I would recommend is uh, a BBC Radio 4 drama called The Letter of Last Resort uh, it's of, available on YouTube uh, and it's a radio play that, that sees a newly appointed Prime Minister kind of struggling with the, the concept of writing these uh, letters uh, and some of the paradoxes that, that they involve um, uh, and uh, then the third recommendation um, that I would have is the film War Book uh, directed by Tom Harper uh, it's available on um, iTunes. Uh, it, it's you know not super expensive, uh, and it deals with a proposed response to a nuclear attack um, in a sort of a committee, a government committee. Um, and throughout the film, you the, the audience kind of realizes that there's there's more to this planning. You know, this is not being done for no reason, and and there's a very sinister um, kind of undertone that that uh, that permeates the latter half of the um, the latter half of the film. As well as some pretty obvious sexism, if you can look past hmm. that that single scene, um, it's a it's a good film. Yeah, I've never actually seen it. I've only seen people talk about it, so I'm gonna check that one out. Okay, cool. Gabe, would you got anything? Uh, yeah, since I was so hung up on the prisoner's dilemma aspect here, um, a lot of the reading on this, if you're not very familiar with it, it can be kind of dense. But there's a great ga- little game online called The Evolution of Trust, um, where you can actually kind of be in the prisoner's dilemma game yourself and see maybe what it's like when you're not sure whether the other person is mm-hmm. being truthful or not. And, uh, it nicely fits the uh, theme of coins in the vending machine. So yeah, go, go have that and maybe, maybe see the movie again and, and you'll have a better understanding. Nice. That's, that's a good balance of three kind of sets of, of different things for people to check out. So, uh, terrific. Uh, John, thanks very much. I think we've been recording for about three hours. I uh, appreciate you doing this on a Saturday uh, thanks yeah, for coming on the all. podcast. I knew you'd be a great guest, and uh, it confirmed all of our, our hopes and dreams. Hope this was fun for you, too. Thank you. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks very much for the inviting me. So if people wanted to follow y- uh, your your thoughts and, and everything on Twitter or anywhere else, where can we... they want to know more about um, Vortex Aeromedia, just go to vortexaeromedia.com. Um, and on uh, Twitter, it's the uh, same again. It's just at Vortex uh, Aeromedia. Uh, and Gabe, thanks as well. Thanks back at being in the studio. It's hard around the holidays to get you here, but we'll, we'll keep going. Absolutely. Uh, I have a couple ideas for future episodes for 2019. Uh, one will be is there's an escape room uh, nearby here where it's a nuclear bunker themed escape room. So I think we might be recording that episode with some friends and then talking about it afterwards. Uh, we have some other upcoming episodes like probably going to do on the beach. We're probably going to do... Uh, some sort of uh, episode on the fourth protocol. We're going to do something on when the wind blows, another a classic uh, British uh, nuclear war film cartoon, actually. So we got a bunch of things in the, in the deck. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and again, thanks, John, Gabe, for coming on the show.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise, helicopter-wise, any of the things that we said that we thought we had expertise on, uh, there are a couple ways you can do that. You can go on our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. We're on Facebook, as we mentioned before, at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. I am on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And we also have an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, hey, go on iTunes or wherever you listen. uh, Give us a five-star review. Or if you don't want to have your your, your weird obsessions nuke-wise on record, just tell a friend, tell your family member, tell a loved one about how they need to check out this podcast if they happen to like these topics. That would be really helpful and very nice, and uh, we appreciate it anytime someone does that. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And John Duke. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. 